This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The City of the Singing Flame by Clark Ashton Smith. It's read by Tommy Patrick Ryan. It runs one hour, 30 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The City of the Singing Flame by Clark Ashton Smith. Read to you by Tommy Patrick Ryan. Forward. When Giles Ann Garth disappeared nearly two years ago, we had been friends for a decade or more, and I knew him as well as anyone could purport to know him. Yet the thing was no less a mystery to me than to others at the time, and until now it has remained a mystery. Like the rest, I sometimes thought that he and Evanley had designed it all between them as a huge, insoluble hoax, that they were still alive somewhere, and laughing at the world that was so sorely baffled by their disappearance. And, until I at last decided to visit Crater Ridge and find, if I could, the two boulders mentioned in Angarth's narrative, no one had uncovered any trace of the missing men or heard even the faintest rumor concerning them. The whole affair, it seemed then, was likely to remain a most singular and exasperating riddle. Anne Garth, whose fame as a writer of fantastic fiction was already very considerable, had been spending that summer among the Sierras, and had been living alone until the artist, Felix Ebenley, went to visit him. Ebenley, whom I had never met, was well known for his imaginative paintings and drawings, and had illustrated more than one of Anne Garth's novels. When neighboring campers became alarmed over the prolonged absence of the two men in the cabin with search for some possible clue, a package addressed to me was found lying on the table, and I received it in due course of time after reading many newspaper speculations concerning the double vanishment. The package contained a small leather-bound notebook, and Anne Garth had written on the flyleaf. Dear Astain, you can publish this journal sometime if you like. People will think it the last and wildest of all my fictions, unless they take it for one of your own. In either case, it will be just as well. Goodbye. Faithfully, Giles Angarth. Feeling that I would certainly meet with the reception he anticipated, and being unsure myself whether the tale was truth or fabrication, I delayed publishing his journal. Now, from my own experience, I have become satisfied of its reality, and am finally printing it, together with an account of my personal adventures. Perhaps the double publication, preceded as it is by Anne Garth's return to mundane surroundings, will help to ensure the acceptance of the whole story for more than mere fantasy. Still, when I recall my own doubts, I wonder. But let the reader decide for himself. And first, as to Giles Anne Garth's journal. Chapter 1. The Dimension Beyond July 1st, 1938. I have never acquired the diary-keeping habit, mainly because of my uneventful mode of existence, in which there has seldom been anything to chronicle. But the thing which happened this morning is so extravagantly strange, so remote from mundane laws and parallels, that I feel impelled to write it down to the best of my understanding and ability. Also, I shall keep account of the possible repetition and continuation of my experience. It will be perfectly safe to do this, for no one who ever reads the record will be likely to believe it. I had gone for a walk on Crater Ridge, which lies a mile or less to the north of my cabin near Summit, 
though differing markedly in its character from the usual landscapes round about, it is one of my favourite places. It is exceptionally bare and desolate, with little more in the way of vegetation than mountain sunflowers, wild currant bushes, and a few sturdy wind-warped pines and supple tamaracks. Geologists deny it a volcanic origin, yet its outcroppings of rough nodular stone and enormous rubble heaps have all the air of scoriac remains, at least to my non-scientific eye. They look like the slag and refuse of cyclopean furnaces poured out in pre-human years to cool and harden into shapes of limitless grotesquerie. Among them are stones that suggest the fragments of primordial bas-reliefs, or small prehistoric idols and figurines, and others that seem to have been graven with lost letters of an indecipherable script. Unexpectedly, there is a little tarn lying on one end of the long dry ridge, a tarn that has never been fathomed. The hill is an odd interlude among the granite sheets and crags, and the fur-clothed ravines and valleys of this region. It was a clear, windless morning, and I paused often to view the magnificent perspectives of varied scenery that were visible on every hand, the titan battlements of Castle Peak, the rude masses of Donner Peak, with its dividing pass of hemlocks, the remote luminous blue of the Nevada mountains, and the soft green of willows in the valley at my feet. It was an aloof, silent world, and I heard no sound other than the dry, crackling noise of cicadas among the currant bushes. I strolled on in a zigzag manner for some distance, but coming to one of the rubble fields with which the ridge is interstrewn, I began to search the ground closely, hoping to find a stone that was sufficiently quaint and grotesque in its form to be worth keeping as a curiosity. I had found several such in my previous wanderings. Suddenly I came to a clear space amid the rubble, in which nothing grew, a space that was round as an artificial ring. In the centre were two isolated boulders, queerly alike in shape and lying about five feet apart. I paused to examine them. Their substance, a dull greenish-grey stone, seemed to be different from anything else in the neighbourhood, and I conceived at once the weird, unwarrantable fancy that they might be the pedestals of vanished columns, worn away by incalculable years, till there remained only these sunken ends. Certainly the perfect roundness and uniformity of the boulders was peculiar, and though I possess a smattering of geology, I could not identify their smooth, soapy material. My imagination was excited, and I began to indulge in some rather overheated fantasies, but the wildest of these was a homely commonplace, in comparison with the thing that happened when I took a single step forward in the vacant space immediately between the two boulders. I shall try to describe it to the utmost of my ability, though human language is naturally wanting in words that are adequate for the delineation of events and sensations beyond the normal scope of human experience. Nothing is more disconcerting than to miscalculate the degree of descent in taking a step. Imagine, then, what it was like to step forward on level open ground and find utter nothingness underfoot. I seem to be going down into an empty gulf, and, at the time, the landscape before me vanished in a swirl of broken images, and everything went blind. There was a feeling of intense hyperborean cold, and an indescribable sickness and vertigo possessed me due, no doubt, to the profound disturbance of equilibrium. Either from the speed of my descent, or for some other reason, I was, too, totally unable to draw breath. My thoughts and feelings were unutterably confused, 
and half the time it seemed to me that I was falling upward rather than downward, or was sliding horizontally or at some oblique angle. At last I had the sensation of turning a complete somersault, and then I found myself standing erect on solid ground once more, without the least shock or jar of impact. The darkness cleared away from my vision, but I was still dizzy, and the optical images I received were altogether meaningless for some moments. When finally I recovered the power of cognizance and was able to view my surroundings with a measure of perception, I experienced a mental confusion equivalent to that of a man who might find himself cast without warning on the shore of some foreign planet. There was the same sense of utter loss and alienation which would assuredly be felt in such a case, the same vertiginous, overwhelming bewilderment, the same ghastly sense of separation from all the familiar environmental details that give colour, form and definition to our lives and even determine our very personalities. I was standing in the midst of a landscape which bore no degree or manner of resemblance to Crater Ridge. A long gradual slope covered with violet grass and studded at intervals with stones of monolithic size and shape ran undulantly away beneath me to a broad plain with sinuous open meadows and high stately forests of an unknown vegetation whose predominant hues were purple and yellow. The plain seemed to end in a wall of impenetrable golden brownish mist that rose with phantom pinnacles to dissolve on a sky of luminescent amber in which there was no sun. In the foreground of this amazing scene, not more than two or three miles away, there loomed a city whose massive towers and mountainous ramparts of red stone were such as the Anakim of undiscovered worlds might build. Wall on beetling wall, spire on giant spire, it soared to confront the heavens, maintaining everywhere the severe and solemn lines of a rectilinear architecture. It seemed to overwhelm and crush down the beholder with its stern and crag-like imminence. As I viewed this city, I forgot my initial sense of bewildering loss and alienage in an awe with which something of actual terror was mingled, and, at the same time, I felt an obscure but profound allurement, the cryptic emanation of some enslaving spell. But after I had gazed a while, the cosmic strangeness and bafflement of my unthinkable position returned upon me, and I felt only a wild desire to escape from the maddeningly oppressive bizarrery of this region and regain my own world. In an effort to fight down my agitation, I tried to figure out, if possible, what had really happened. I had read a number of transdimensional stories, in fact, I had written one or two myself, and I had often pondered the possibility of other worlds or material planes which may exist in the same space with ours, invisible and impalpable to human senses. Of course, I realised at once that I had fallen into some such dimension. Doubtless, when I took that step forward between the boulders, I had been precipitated into some sort of floor or fissure in space, to emerge at the bottom in this alien sphere in a totally different kind of space. It sounded simple enough in a way, but not simple enough to make the modus operandi anything but a brain-racking mystery, and in a further effort to collect myself, I studied my immediate surroundings with close attention. This time I was impressed by the arrangement of the monolithic stones I have spoken of, many of which were disposed at fairly regular intervals in two parallel lines running down the hill, as if to mark the course of some ancient road obliterated by the purple grass. Turning to follow its ascent, I saw right behind me two columns, standing at precisely the same distance apart as the two odd boulders on Crater Ridge, and formed of the same soapy greenish-grey stone. The pillars were perhaps nine feet high and been taller at one time, since the tops were splintered and broken away. 
Not far above them, the mounting slope vanished from view in a great bank of the same golden-brown mist that enveloped the remoter plain. But there were no more monoliths, and it seemed as if the road had ended with those pillars. Inevitably, I began to speculate as to the relationship between the columns in this new dimension and the boulders in my own world. Surely the resemblance could not be a matter of mere chance. If I stepped between the columns, could I return to the human sphere by a reversal of my precipitation therefrom? And if so, by what inconceivable beings from foreign time and space had the columns and boulders been established as the portals of a gateway between the two worlds? What could have used the gateway, and for what purpose? My brain reeled before the infinite vistas of surmise that were opened by such questions. However, what concerned me most was the problem of getting back to Crater Ridge, the weirdness of it all, the monstrous walls of the nearby town, the unnatural hues and forms of the outlandish scenery, were too much for human nerves. And I felt that I should go mad if forced to remain long in such a milieu. Also, there was no telling what hostile powers or entities I might encounter if I stayed. The slope and plain were devoid of animate life, as far as I could see, but the great city was presumptive proof of its existence. Unlike the heroes in my own tales who were wont to visit the fifth dimension, or the worlds of Algol with perfect sang-froid, I did not feel in the least adventurous, and I shrank back with man's instinctive recoil before the unknown. With one fearful glance at the looming city, and the wide plain with its lofty gorgeous vegetation, I turned and stepped back between the columns. There was the same instantaneous plunge into blind and freezing gulfs, the same indeterminate falling and twisting which had marked my descent into this new dimension. At the end I found myself standing, very dizzy and shaken, on the same spot from which I had taken my forward step between the greenish-grey boulders. Crater Ridge was swirling and reeling about me as if in the throes of earthquake, and I had to sit down for a minute or two before I could recover my equilibrium. I came back to the cabin like a man in a dream. The experience seemed, and still seems, incredible and unreal, and yet it has overshadowed everything else, and has coloured and dominated all my thoughts. Perhaps by writing it down I can shake it off a little. It has unsettled me more than any previous experience in my whole life, and the world about me seems hardly less improbable and nightmarish than the one which I have penetrated in a fashion so fortuitous. August 2nd. I have done a lot of thinking in the past few days, and the more I ponder and puzzle, the more mysterious it all becomes. Granting the floor and space, which must be an absolute vacuum, impervious to air, ether, light, and matter, how is it possible for me to fall into it? And having fallen in, how could I fall out, particularly into a sphere that has no certifiable relationship with ours? But, after all, one process would be as easy as the other, in theory. The main objection is... How could one move in a vacuum, either up or down, or backward or forward? The whole thing would baffle the comprehension of an Einstein, and I cannot feel that I have even approached the true solution. Also, I have been fighting the temptation to go back, if only to convince myself that the thing really occurred. But, after all, why shouldn't I go back? An opportunity has been vouchsafed to me such as no man may even have been given before, and the wonders I shall see, the secrets I shall learn, beyond imagining. My nervous trepidation is inexcusably childish under the circumstances. 2. The Titan City August 3rd. I went back this morning armed with a revolver. Somehow, without thinking that it might make a difference, I did not step in the very middle of the space between the boulders. Undoubtedly, as a result of this, 
My descent was more prolonged and impetuous than before, and seemed to consist mainly of a series of spiral somersaults. It must have taken me several minutes to recover from the ensuing vertigo, and when I came to I was lying on the violet grass. This time I went boldly down the slope, and keeping as much as I could in the shelter of the bizarre purple and yellow vegetation, I stole toward the looming city. All was very still, there was no breath of wind in those exotic trees which appeared to imitate in their lofty, upright boles and horizontal foliage the severe architectural lines of the Cyclopean buildings. I had not gone far when I came to a road in the forest, a road paved with stupendous blocks of stone at least twenty feet square. It ran toward the city. I thought for a while that it was wholly deserted, perhaps disused, and I even dared to walk upon it, till I heard a noise behind me, and turning, saw the approach of several singular entities. Terrified, I sprang back and hid myself in a thicket, from which I watched the passing of those creatures, wondering fearfully if they had seen me. Apparently my fears were groundless, for they did not even glance at my hiding place. It is hard for me to describe or even visualise them now, for they were totally unlike anything that we are accustomed to think of as human or animal. They must have been ten feet tall, and they were moving along with colossal strides that took them from sight in a few instants beyond a turn of the road. Their bodies were bright and shining, as if encased in some sort of armour, and their heads were equipped with high, curving appendages of opalescent hues which nodded above them like fantastic plumes, but may have been antennae or some other sense-organs of a novel type. Trembling with excitement and wonder, I continued my progress through the richly coloured undergrowth. As I went on, I perceived for the first time that there were no shadows anywhere. The light came from all portions of the sunless amber heaven, pervading everything with a soft, uniform luminosity. All was motionless and silent as before, and there is no evidence of bird, insect, or animal life in all this preternatural landscape. But, when I had advanced to within a mile of the city, as well as I could judge the distance in a realm where the very proportions of objects were unfamiliar, I became aware of something which at first was recognisable as a vibration rather than a sound. There was a queer thrilling in my nerves, the disquieting sense of some unknown force or emanation flowing through my body. This was perceptible for some time before I heard the music, but having heard it, my auditory nerves identified it at once with the vibration. It was faint and far off, and seemed to emanate from the very heart of the Titan city. The melody was piercingly sweet, and resembled at times the singing of some voluptuous feminine voice. However, no human voice could have possessed that unearthly pitch, the shrill, perpetually sustained notes that somehow suggested the light of remote worlds and stars translated into sound. Ordinarily, I am not very sensitive to music. I have even been reproached for not reacting more strongly to it. But I had not gone much farther when I realised the peculiar mental and emotional spell which the far-off sound was beginning to exert upon me. There was a siren-like allurement which drew me on, forgetful of the strangeness and potential perils of my situation, and I felt a slow, drug-like intoxication of brain and senses. In some insidious manner, I know not how nor why, the music conveyed the ideas of vast but attainable space and altitude, of superhuman freedom and exaltation, and it seemed to promise all the impossible splendours of which my imagination has vaguely dreamt. The forest continued almost to the city walls. Peering from behind the final boskage, 
I saw their overwhelming battlements in the sky above me, and noted the flawless jointure of the prodigious blocks. I was near the great road which entered an open gate large enough to admit the passage of behemoths. There were no guards in sight, and several more of the tall, gleaming entities came striding along and went in as I watched. From where I stood, I was unable to see inside the gate, for the wall was stupendously thick. The music poured from that mysterious entrance in an ever-strengthening flood, and sought to draw me on with its weird seduction, eager for unimaginable things. It was hard to resist, hard to rally my willpower and turn back. I tried to concentrate on the thought of danger, but the thought was tenuously unreal. At last I tore myself away and retraced my footsteps very slowly and lingeringly, till I was beyond reach of the music. Even then the spell persisted like the effects of a drug, and all the way home I was tempted to return and follow those shining giants into the city. August 5th. I have visited the new dimension once more. I thought I could resist that summoning music, and I even took some cotton wadding with which to stuff my ears if it should affect me too strongly. I began to hear the supernal melody at the same distance as before, and was drawn onward in the same manner, but this time I entered the open gate. I wonder if I can describe that city. I felt like a crawling ant upon its mammoth pavements, amid the measureless babble of its buildings, of its streets and arcades. Everywhere there were columns, obelisks, and the perpendicular pylons of fane-like structures that would have dwarfed those of Thebes and Heliopolis. And the people of the city! How is one to depict them, or give them a name? I think that the gleaming entities I first saw are not the true inhabitants, but are only visitors, perhaps from some other world or dimension like myself. The real people are giants too, but they move slowly, with solemn, heriatic paces. Their bodies are nude and swart, and their limbs are those of Caryatides. Massive enough, it would seem, to uphold the roofs and lintels of their own buildings. I fear to describe them minutely, for human words would give the idea of something monstrous and uncouth, and these beings are not monstrous, but they have merely developed in obedience to the laws of another evolution than ours, the environmental forces and conditions of a different world. Somehow I was not afraid when I saw them. Perhaps the music had dragged me till I was beyond fear. There was a group of them just inside the gate, and they seemed to pay me no attention whatever as I passed them. The opaque, jet-like orbs of their huge eyes were impassive as the carven eyes of Androsphinxes, and they uttered no sound from their heavy, straight, expressionless lips. Perhaps they lacked the sense of hearing, for their strange, semi-rectangular heads were devoid of anything in the nature of external ears. I followed the music, which was still remote and seemed to increase little in loudness. I was soon overtaken by several of those beings whom I had previously seen on the road outside the walls, and they passed me quickly and disappeared in the labyrinth of buildings. After them there came other beings of a less gigantic kind, and without the bright shards or armour worn by the first comers. Then overhead two creatures with long, translucent, blood-coloured wings, intricately veined and ribbed, came flying side by side, and vanished behind the others. Their faces, featured with organs of unsurmisable use, were at those of animals, and I felt sure that they were beings of a high order of development. 
I saw hundreds of those slow-moving, somber entities whom I have identified as the true inhabitants, but none of them appeared to notice me. Doubtless they were accustomed to seeing far weirder and more unusual kinds of life than humanity. As I went on, I was overtaken by dozens of improbable-looking creatures, all going in the same direction as myself, as if drawn by the same siren melody. Deeper and deeper I went into the wilderness of colossal architecture, led by that remote ethereal opiate music. I soon noticed a sort of gradual ebb and flow in the sound, occupying an interval of ten minutes or more, but by imperceptible degrees it grew sweeter and nearer. I wondered how it could penetrate that manifold maze of builded stone and be heard outside the walls. I must have walked for miles in the ceaseless gloom of those rectangular structures that hung above me, tier on tier at an awful height in the amber zenith. Then, at length, I came to the core and secret of it all. Preceded and followed by a number of those chimerical entities, I emerged on a great square, in whose centre was a temple-like building more immense than the others. The music poured imperiously shrill and loud from its many-columned entrance. I felt the thrill of one who approaches the sanctum of some hierarchical mystery when I entered the halls of that building. People who must have come from many different worlds or dimensions went with me, and before me, along the titanic colonnades, whose pillars were graven with indecipherable runes and enigmatic bas-reliefs. The dark, colossal inhabitants of the town were standing or roaming about, intent, like all the others, on their own affairs. None of these beings spoke, either to me or to one another, and though several eyed me casually, my presence was evidently taken for granted. There are no words to convey the incomprehensible wonder of it all, and the music. I have utterly failed to describe that also. It was as if some marvellous elixir had been turned into sound waves, an elixir conferring the gift of superhuman life and the high, magnificent dreams which are dreamt by the immortals. It mounted in my brain like a supernal drunkenness. As I approached the hidden source, I do not know what obscure warning prompted me now to stuff my ears with cotton before I went any farther. Though I could still hear it, still feel its peculiar, penetrant vibration, the sound became muted when I had done this, and its influence was less powerful henceforth. There is little doubt that I owe my life to this simple and homely precaution. The endless rows of columns grew dim for a while as the interior of a long basaltic cavern, and then, some distance ahead, I perceived the glimmering of a soft light on the floor and pillars. The light soon became an overflooding radiance, as if gigantic lamps were being lit in the temple's heart. The vibrations of the hidden music pulsed more strongly in my nerves. The hall ended in a chamber of immense indefinite scope, whose walls and roof were doubtful with unremoving shadows. In the centre, amid the pavement of mammoth blocks, there was a circular pit, above which seemed to float a fountain of flame that soared in one perpetual, slowly lengthening jet. This flame was the sole illumination, and also was the source of the wild, unearthly music. Even with my purposely deafened ears, I was wooed by the shrill and starry sweetness of its singing, and I felt the voluptuous lure in the high, vertiginous exultation. I knew immediately that the place was a shrine, and that the trans-dimensional beings who accompanied me were visiting pilgrims. There were scores of them, perhaps hundreds, but all were dwarfed in the cosmic immensity of that chamber. They were gathered before the flame in various attitudes of worship. They bowed their exotic heads, or made mysterious gestures or adoration with unhuman hands and members. 
and the voices of several deep as booming drums or sharp as the stridulation of giant insects were audible amid the singing of the fountain. Spellbound, I went forward and joined them. Enthralled by the music and by the vision of the soaring flame, I paid as little heed to my outlandish companions as they to me. The fountain rose and rose until its light flickered on the limbs and features of throned colossal statues behind it, of heroes, gods or demons from the earlier cycles of alien time, staring in stone from a dusk of illimitable mystery. The fire was green and dazzling, pure as the central flame of a star, it blinded me, and when I turned my eyes away, the air was filled with webs of intricate colour, with swiftly changing arabesques whose numberless, unwanted hues and patterns were such as no mundane eye had ever beheld. And I felt a stimulating warmth that filled my very marrow with intenser life. 3. The Lure of the Flame the music mounted with the flame, and I understood now its recurrent ebb and flow. As I looked and listened, a mad thought was born in my mind, the thought of how marvellous and ecstatical it would be to run forward and leap headlong into the singing fire. The music seemed to tell me that I should find in that moment of flaring dissolution all the delight and triumph, all the splendour and exultation it had promised from afar. It besought me, it pleaded with tones of supernal melody, and despite the wadding in my ears, the seduction was well-nigh irresistible. However, it had not robbed me of all sanity. With a sudden start of terror, like one who has been tempted to fling himself from a high precipice, I drew back. Then I saw that the same dreadful impulse was shared by some of my companions. The two entities with scarlet wings, whom I have previously mentioned, were standing a little apart from the rest of us. Now, with a great fluttering, they rose and flew toward the flame like moss toward a candle. For a brief moment the light shone redly through their half-transparent wings, ere they disappeared in the leaping incandescence, which flared briefly and then burned as before. Then, in rapid succession, a number of other beings, who represented the most divergent trends of biology, sprang forward and immolated themselves in the flame. There were creatures with translucent bodies, and some that shone with all the hues of the opal. There were winged colossi and titans who strode as with seven-league boots, and there was one being with useless abortive wings who crawled rather than ran to seek the same glorious doom as the rest. But among them there were none of the city's people. These merely stood and looked on, impassive and statue-like as ever. I saw that the fountain had now reached its greatest height and was beginning to decline, it sank steadily but slowly to half its former elevation. During this interval there were no more acts of self-sacrifice, and several of the beings beside me turned abruptly and went away as if they had overcome the lethal spell. One of the tall armoured entities, as he left, addressed me in words that were like clarion notes, with unmistakable accents of warning. By a mighty effort of will and a turmoil of conflicting emotions, I followed him, at every step the madness and delirium of the music warred with my instincts of self-preservation. More than once I started to go back. My homeward journey was blurred and doubtful as the wanderings of a man in opium trance, and the music sang behind me and told me of the rapture I had missed, of the flaming dissolution whose brief instant was better than aeons of mortal life. August 9th. I have tried to go on with a new story, but have made no progress. 
Anything that I can imagine or frame in language seems flat and puerile beside the world of unsearchable mystery to which I have found admission. The temptation to return is more cogent than ever. The call of that remembered music is sweeter than the voice of a loved woman. And always I am tormented by the problem of it all, and tantalized by the little which I have perceived and understood. What forces are these whose existence and working I have merely apprehended? Who are the inhabitants of the city, and who are the beings that visit the enshrined flame? What rumour or legend has drawn them from outland realms and ulterior planets to that place of inerrable danger and destruction? And what is the fountain itself? What secret of its lure and its deadly singing? These problems admit of infinite surmise, but no conceivable solution. I am planning to go back once more, but not alone. Someone must go with me, this time as a witness to the wonder and the peril. It is all too strange for credence. I must have human corroboration of what I have seen and felt and conjectured. Also, another might understand where I have failed to do more than apprehend. Who shall I take? It will be necessary to invite someone here from the outer world, someone of high intellectual and aesthetic capacity, Shall I ask Philip Stain, my fellow fiction writer? He would be too busy, I fear. But there is the Californian artist, Felix Ebenley, who has illustrated some of my fantastic novels. Ebenley would be the man to see and appreciate the new dimension, if he can come. With his bent for the bizarre and unearthly, the spectacle of that plain and city, the Babelian buildings and arcades and the Temple of the Flame will simply enthrall him. I shall write him immediately to his San Francisco address. August 12th. Ebenley is here. The mysterious hints in my letter regarding some novel pictorial subjects along his own line were too provocative for him to resist. Now I have explained fully and given him a detailed account of my adventures. I can see that he is a little incredulous, for which I hardly blame him. But he will not remain incredulous for long, for tomorrow we shall visit together the city of the singing flame. August 13th. I must concentrate my disordered faculties, must choose my words and write with exceeding care. This will be the last entry in my journal, and the last writing I shall ever do. When I have finished, I shall wrap the journal up and address it to Philip Astain, who can make such disposition of it as he sees fit. I took Ebenley into the other dimension today. He was impressed, even as I had been, by the two isolated boulders on Crater Ridge. They look like the guttered ends of columns established by pre-human gods, he remarked. I begin to believe you now. I told him to go first and indicated the place where he should step. He obeyed without hesitation, and I had the singular experience of seeing a man melt into utter, instantaneous nothingness. One moment he was there, the next there was only bare ground and the far-off tamaracks whose view his body had obstructed. I followed and found him standing in speechless awe on the violet grass. This, he said at last, is the sort of thing whose existence I have hitherto merely suspected, and have never been able to hint at in my most imaginative drawings. We spoke little as we followed the range of monolithic boulders toward the plain. Far in the distance, beyond those high and stately trees with their sumptuous foliage, the golden-brown vapours had parted, showing vistas of an immense horizon, and past the horizon were range on range of gleaming orbs and fiery, flying motes in the depth of that amber heaven. It was as if the veil of another universe than ours had been drawn back. 
We crossed the plain and came at length within earshot of the siren music. I warned Evanley to stuff his ears with cotton wadding, but he refused. I don't want to deaden any new sensation I may experience, he observed. We entered the city. My companion was in a veritable rhapsody of artistic delight when he beheld the enormous buildings and the people. I could see, too, that the music had taken hold upon him. His look soon became fixed and dreamy as that of an opium-eater. At first he made many comments on the architecture and the various beings who passed us, and called my attention to details which I had not perceived before. However, as we drew nearer the Temple of the Flame, his observational interest seemed to flag, and was replaced by more and more of an ecstatic inward absorption. His remarks became fewer and briefer, and he did not even seem to hear my questions. It was evident that the sound had wholly bemused and bewitched him. Even as on my former visit there were many pilgrims going toward the shrine, and few that were coming away from it. Most of them belonged to evolutionary types that I had seen before. Among those that were new to me I recall one gorgeous creature with golden and cerulean wings, like those of a giant Lepidoptera, and scintillating jewel-like eyes that must have been designed to mirror the glories of some Edenic world. I felt, too, as before, the captious thraldom and bewitchment, the insidious gradual perversion of thought and instinct, as if the music were working in my brain like a subtle alkaloid. Since I had taken my usual precaution, my subjection to the influence was less complete than that of Ebonley, but nevertheless it was enough to make me forget a number of things, among them the initial concern which I had felt when my companion refused to employ the same mode of protection as myself. I no longer thought of his danger, or my own, except as something very distant and immaterial. The streets were like the prolonged and bewildering labyrinth of a nightmare, but the music led us forthrightly, and always there were other pilgrims. Like men in the grip of some powerful current, we were drawn to our destination. As we passed along the hall of gigantic columns and near the abode of the fiery fountain, a sense of our peril quickened momentarily into my brain, and I sought to warn Ebony once more, but all my protests and remonstrances were futile. He was deaf as a machine, and wholly impervious to anything but the lethal music. His expression and movements were those of a somnambulist. Even when I seized and shook him with such violence as I could muster, he remained oblivious of my presence. The throng of worshippers was larger than upon my first visit. The jet of pure incandescent flame was mounting steadily as we entered, and it sang with the pure ardour and ecstasy of a star alone in space. Again, with ineffable tones, it told me the rapture of a moth-like death in its lofty soaring, the exultation and triumph of a momentary union with its elemental essence. The flame rose to its apex, and even for me the mesmeric lure was well-nigh irresistible. Many of our companions succumbed, and the first to immolate himself was the giant Lepidopterous being. Four others, of diverse evolutional types, followed in appallingly swift succession. In my own partial subjection to the music, my own effort to resist that deadly enslavement, I had almost forgotten the very presence of Ebony. It was too late for me to even think of stopping him, when he ran forward in a series of leaps that were both solemn and frenzied, like the beginnings of some sacerdotal dance, and hurled himself headlong into the flame. The fire enveloped him, it flared up for an instant with a more dazzling greenness, and that was all. 
Slowly, as if from benumbed brain centres, a horror crept upon my conscious mind and helped to annul the perilous mesmerism. I turned, while many others were following Ebenley's example, and fled from the shrine and from the city. But somehow the horror diminished as I went, more and more. I found myself envying my companion's fate, and wondering as to the sensations he had felt in that moment of fiery dissolution. Now, as I write this, I am wondering why I came back again to the human world. Words are futile to express what I have beheld and experienced, and the change that has come upon me, beneath the play of incalculable forces in a world of which no other mortal is even cognizant. Literature is nothing more than a shadow. Life, with its drawn-out length of monotonous, reiterative days, is unreal and without meaning, now in comparison with the splendid death which I might have had, the glorious doom which is still in store. I have no longer any will to fight the ever-insistent music which I hear in memory, and there seems to be no reason at all why I should fight it. Tomorrow I shall return to the city. 4. The Third Venturer Even when I, Philippa Stain, had read through the journal of my friend Giles Angarth so many times that I had almost learned it by heart, I was still doubtful as to whether the incidents related therein were fiction or verity. The transdimensional adventures of Anne Garth and Ebonley, the city of the flame with its strange residents and pilgrims, the immolation of Ebonley, and the hinted return of the narrator himself for a like purpose in the last entry of the diary, were very much the sort of thing that Anne Garth might have imagined in one of the fantastic novels for which he had become so justly famous. And, to this seemingly impossible and incredible nature of the whole tale, my hesitancy in accepting it as veridical will easily be understood. However, on the other hand, there was the unsolved and recalcitrant enigma offered by the disappearance of the two men. Both were well known, one as a writer, the other as an artist. Both were in flourishing circumstances, with no serious cares or troubles. And their vanishment, all things considered, was difficult to explain on the ground of any motive less unusual or extraordinary than the one assigned in the journal. At first, as I have mentioned in my foreword to the diary, I thought the whole affair might well have been devised as a somewhat elaborate practical joke, but this theory became less and less tenable as weeks and months went by and linked themselves slowly into a year without the reappearance of the presumptive jokers. Now, at last, I can testify to the truth of all that Angarth wrote, and more. For I, too, have been in Edmos, the city of singing flame, and have known also the supernal glories and raptures of the inner dimension. And of these I must tell, however falteringly and inadequately, with mere human words, before the vision fades. For these are things which neither I nor any other shall behold or experience again. Edmos itself is now a riven ruin, the Temple of the Flame has been blasted to its foundations in the basic rock, and the fountain of singing fire has been stricken at its source. The inner dimension has perished like a broken bubble in the great war that was made upon Edmos by the rulers of the outer lands. After having finally laid down Angarth's journal, I was unable to forget the peculiar and tantalizing problems it raised. The vague but infinitely suggestive vistas opened by the tale were such as to haunt my imagination recurrently with a hint of half-revealed mysteries. I was troubled by the possibility of some great and mystic meaning behind it all, some cosmic actuality of which the narrator had perceived merely the external veils and fringes. 
As time went on, I found myself pondering it perpetually and becoming more and more possessed by an overwhelming wonder and a sense of something which no mere action weaver would have been likely to invent. In the early summer of 1939, after finishing a new novel, I felt able for the first time to take the necessary leisure for the execution of a project that had often occurred to me. Putting all my affairs in order and knitting all the loose ends of my literary labors and correspondence in case I should not return, I left my home in Auburn, ostensibly for a week's vacation. Actually, I went to Summit, with the idea of investigating closely the milieu in which Anne Garth and Ebonley had disappeared from human ken. With strange emotions, I visited the forsaken cabin south of Crater Ridge that had been occupied by Anne Garth, and saw the rough table of pine boards upon which my friend had written his journal, and then left the sealed package containing it to be forwarded to me after his departure. There was a weird and brooding loneliness about the place, as if the non-human infinitudes had already claimed it for their own. The unlocked door had sagged inward from the pressure of high-piled winter snows, and fir needles had sifted across the sill to strew the unswept floor. Somehow, I know not why, the bizarre narrative became more real and more credible to me, while I stood there, as if an occult intimation of all that had happened to its author still lingered around the cabin. This mysterious intimation grew stronger when I came to visit Crater Ridge itself, and to search amid its miles of pseudo-volcanic rubble for the two boulders so explicitly described by Angarth as having a likeness to the pedestals of ruined columns. Following the northward path which he must have taken from his cabin, and trying to retrace his wanderings of the long barren hill, I combed it thoroughly from end to end and from side to side, since he had not specified the location of the boulders. And after two mornings spent in this manner, without result, I was almost ready to abandon the quest and dismiss the queer, soapy, greenish-gray column ends as one of Angarth's most provocative and deceptive fictions. It must have been the formless, haunting intuition to which I have referred that made me renew the search on the third morning. This time, after crossing and recrossing the hilltop for an hour or more, and weaving torturously among the cicada-haunted wild-current bushes and sunflowers on the dusty slopes, I came at last to an open, circular, rock-surrounded space that was totally unfamiliar. I had somehow missed it in all my previous roamings. It was the place of which Angarth had told, and I saw, with an inexpressible thrill, the two rounded, worn-looking boulders that were situated in the center of the ring. I believe that I trembled a little with excitement as I went forward to inspect the curious stones. Bending over, but not daring to enter the bare, pebbly space between them, I touched one of them with my hand and received a sensation of preternatural smoothness, together with a coolness that was inexplicable, considering that the boulders in the soil about them must have lain unshaded from the sultry August sun for many hours. From that moment I became fully persuaded that Anne Garth's account was no mere fable, just why I should have felt so certain of this, I am powerless to say, but it seemed to me that I stood on the threshold of an ultra-mundane mystery, on the brink of uncharted gulfs. I looked about at the familiar Sierra valleys and mountains, wondering that they still preserved their wanted outlines, and were still unchanged by the contiguity of alien worlds, still untouched by the luminous glories of arcanic dimensions. Convinced that I had indeed found the gateway between the worlds, I was prompted to strange reflections. What and where was this other sphere to which my friend had attained entrance? Was it near at hand, like a secret room in the structure of space? Or was it, in reality, millions or trillions of light years away, by the reckoning of astronomic distance, in a planet of some ulterior galaxy? 
After all, we know little or nothing of the actual nature of space, and perhaps, in some way that we cannot imagine, the infinite is doubled upon itself in places, with dimensional folds and tucks and shortcuts whereby the distance to Algenib or Aldebaran is but a step. Perhaps also there is more than one infinity. The spatial flaw into which Angarth had fallen might well be a sort of superdimension, abridging the cosmic intervals and connecting universe with universe. However, because of this very certitude that I had found the inner spheric portals and could follow Angarth and Evanly if I so desired, I hesitated before trying the experiment. I was mindful of the mystic danger and the irrefragable lure that had overcome the others. I was consumed by imaginative curiosity, by an avid, well-nigh feverish longing to behold the wonders of this exotic realm. But I did not purpose to become a victim to the opiate power and fascination of the singing flame. I stood for a long time, eyeing the odd boulder in the barren, pebble-littered spot that gave admission to the unknown. At length I went away, deciding to defer my venture till the following morning. Visualizing the weird doom to which the others had gone so voluntarily, and even gladly, I must confess that I was afraid. On the other hand, I was drawn by the fateful allurement that leads an explorer into far places, and, perhaps, by something more than this. I slept badly that night, with nerves and brain excited by formless, glowing premonitions, by intimations of half-conceived perils and splendors and vastnesses. Early the next morning, while the sun was still hanging above the Nevada mountains, I turned to Crater Ridge. I carried a strong hunting knife and a Colt revolver, and wore a filled cartridge belt with a knapsack containing sandwiches and a thermos bottle of coffee. Before starting, I had stuffed my ears tightly with cotton soaked in a new anesthetic fluid, mild but efficacious, which would serve to deafen me completely for many hours. In this way, I felt that I should be immune to the demoralizing music of the fiery fountain. I peered about at the rugged landscape with its far-flung vistas, wondering if I should ever see it again. Then, resolutely, but with the eerie thrilling and sinking of one who throws himself from a high cliff into some bottomless chasm, I stepped forward into the space between the grayish-green boulders. My sensations, generally speaking, were similar to those described by Angarth in his diary. Blackness and illimitable emptiness seemed to wrap me round in a dizzy swirl as of rushing wind or milling water, and I went down and down in a spiral descent whose duration I have never been able to estimate. Intolerably stifled and without even the power to gasp for breath in the chill, airless vacuum that froze my very muscles and marrow, I felt that I should lose consciousness in another moment and descend into the greater gulf of death or oblivion. Something seemed to arrest my fall, and I became aware that I was standing still, though I was troubled for some time by a queer doubt as to whether my position was vertical, horizontal, or upside down in relation to the solid substance that my feet had encountered. Then the blackness lifted slowly like a dissolving cloud, and I saw the slope of violet grass, the rows of irregular monoliths running downward from where I stood, and the gray-green columns near at hand. Beyond was the titan, perpendicular city of red stone that was dominant above the high and multicolored vegetation of the plain. It was all very much as Angarth had depicted it, but somehow even then I became aware of differences that were not immediately or clearly definable, of scenic details and atmospheric elements for which his account had not prepared me. And at the moment I was too thoroughly disequilibriated and overpowered by the vision of it all to even speculate concerning the character of these differences. 
as I gazed at the city with its crowding tiers of battlements and its multitude of overlooming spires, I felt the invisible threads of a secret attraction, was seized by an imperative longing to know the mysteries hidden behind the massive walls and the myriad buildings. Then, a moment later, my gaze was drawn to the remote opposite horizon of the plain, as if by some conflicting impulse whose nature and origin were undiscoverable. It must have been because I had formed so clear and definite a picture of the scene from my friend's narrative that I was surprised and even a little disturbed as if by something wrong or irrelevant when I saw in the far distance the shining towers of what seemed to be another city, a city of which Angarth had not written. The towers rose in serried lines reaching for many miles in a curious arc-like formation and were sharply defined against a blackish mass of cloud that had reared behind them and was spreading out on the luminous amber sky in sullen webs and sinister crawling filaments. Subtle disquietude and repulsion seemed to emanate from the far-off glittering spires, even as attraction emanated from those of the nearer city. I saw them quiver and pulse with an evil light like living and moving things, through what I assumed to be some refractive trick of the atmosphere. Then, for an instant, the black cloud behind them glowed with dull, angry crimson throughout its whole mass, and even its questing webs and tendrils were turned into lurid threads of fire. The crimson faded, leaving the cloud inert and lumpish as before, but from many of the vanward towers lines of red and violet flame had leaped, like outthrust lances, at the bosom of the plain beneath them. They were held thus for at least a minute, moving slowly across a wide area before they vanished. In the spaces between the towers I now perceived a multitude of gleaming restless particles, like armies of militant atoms, and wondered if perchance they were living things. If the idea had not appeared so fantastical, I could have sworn even then that the far city had already changed its position and was advancing toward the other on the plain. 5. The Striding Doom Apart from the fulguration of the cloud, the flames that had sprung from the towers and the quiverings which I deemed a refractive phenomenon, the whole landscape before and about me was unnaturally still. On the strange amber air, the Tyrian-tinted grasses and the proud opulent foliage of the unknown trees, where lay the dead calm that precedes the stupendous turmoil of typhonic storm or seismic cataclysm. The brooding sky was permeated with intuitions of cosmic menace and weighed down by a dim elemental despair. Alarmed by this ominous atmosphere, I looked behind me at the two pillars which, according to Angarth, were the gateway of return to the human world. For an instant I was tempted to go back. Then I turned once more to the nearby city, and the feelings I have mentioned were lost in an oversurging awesomeness and wonder. I felt the thrill of a deep, supernal exultation before the magnitude of the mighty buildings. A compelling sorcery was laid upon me by the very lines of their construction, by the harmonies of a solemn architectural music. I forgot my impulse to return to Crater Ridge and started down the slope toward the city. Soon the boughs of the purple and yellow forest arched above me like the altitudes of titan-builded isles, with leaves that fretted the rich heavens in gorgeous arabesques. Beyond them, ever and anon, I caught glimpses of the piled ramparts of my destination, but looking back in the direction of that other city on the horizon, I found that its fulgurating towers were now lost to view. I saw, however, that the masses of the great somber cloud were rising steadily on the sky, and once again they flared to a swart malignant red, as if with some unearthly form of sheet lightning, and though I could hear nothing with my deadened ears, the ground beneath me trembled with long vibrations as of thunder. 
There was a queer quality in the vibrations that seemed to tear my nerves and set my teeth on edge with its throbbing, lancinating discord, painful as broken glass or the torment of a tightened rack. Like Angarth before me, I came to the paved Cyclopean highway. Following it, in the stillness after the unheard peals of thunder, I felt another and subtler vibration, which I knew to be that of the singing flame in the temple at the city's core. It seemed to soothe and exalt and bear me on, to erase with soft caresses the ache that still lingered in my nerves from the torturing pulsations of the thunder. I met no one on the road, and was not passed by any of the trans-dimensional pilgrims such as had overtaken Angarth, and when the accumulated ramparts loomed above the highest trees, I came forth from the wood in their very shadow. I saw that the great gate of the city was closed, leaving no crevice through which a pygmy like myself might obtain entrance. Feeling a profound and peculiar discomfiture, such as one would experience in a dream that had gone wrong, I stared at the grim, unrelenting blackness of the gate, which seemed to be wrought from one enormous sheet of somber and lusterless metal. Then I peered upward at the sheerness of the wall, which rose above me like an alpine cliff, and saw that the battlements were seemingly deserted. Was the city forsaken by its people, by the guardians of the flame? Was it no longer open to the pilgrims who came from outlying lands to worship the flame and immolate themselves? With a curious reluctance, after lingering there for many minutes in a sort of stupor, I turned away to retrace my steps. In the interim of my journey, the black cloud had drawn immeasurably nearer, and was now blotting out half the heaven with two portentous wing-like formations. It was a sinister and terrible sight, and it lightened again with that ominous, wrathful flaming, with a detonation that beat upon my deaf ears like waves of disintegrative force, and seemed to lacerate the inmost fibers of my body. I hesitated, fearing that the storm would burst upon me before I could reach the interdimensional portals, for I saw that I should be exposed to an elemental disturbance of unfamiliar character and supreme violence. Then, in midair, before the imminent, ever-rising cloud, I perceived two flying creatures whom I can compare only to gigantic moths. With bright, luminous wings upon the ebon forefront of the storm, they approached me in level but precipitate flight, and would have crashed headlong against the shut gate if they had not checked themselves with sudden, easy poise. With hardly a flutter, they descended and paused on the ground beside me, supporting themselves on queer, delicate legs that branched at the knee joints in floating antennae and waving tentacles. Their wings were sumptuously mottled webs of pearl and matter, opal and orange. Their heads were circled by a series of convex and concave eyes, and fringed with coiling horn-like organs from whose hollow ends there hung aerial filaments. I was startled and amazed by their aspect, but somehow, by an obscure telepathy, I felt assured that their intentions toward me were friendly. I knew that they wished to enter the city, and also that they understood my predicament. Nevertheless, I was not prepared for what happened. With movements of utmost celerity and grace, one of the giant moth-like beings stationed himself at my right hand, and the other at my left. Then, before I could even suspect their intention, they enfolded my limbs and body with their long tentacles, wrapping me round and round as if with powerful ropes, and carrying me between them as if my weight were a mere trifle. They rose in the air and soared at the mighty ramparts. In that swift and effortless ascent, the wall seemed to flow downward beside and beneath us like a wave of molten stone. Dizzily, I watched the falling away of the mammoth blocks in endless recession. Then we were level with the broad ramparts, were flying across the unguarded parapets and over a canyon-like space toward the immense rectangular buildings and numberless square towers. We had hardly crossed the walls when a weird flickering glow was cast on the edifices before us by another lightning of the great cloud. 
The moth-like beings paid no apparent heed and flew steadily on into the city with their strange faces toward an unseen goal. But, turning my head to peer backward at the storm, I beheld an astounding and appalling spectacle. Beyond the city ramparts, as if wrought by black magic or the toil of genii, another city had reared, and its high towers were moving swiftly forward beneath the rubescent dome of the burning cloud. A second glance, and I perceived that the towers were identical with those I had beheld afar on the plain. In the interim of my passage through the woods, they had traveled over an expanse of many miles by means of some unknown motive power and had closed in on the city of the flame. Looking more closely, to determine the manner of their locomotion, I saw that they were not mounted on wheels, but on short, massy legs like jointed columns of metal that gave them the stride of ungainly colossi. There were six or more of these legs to each tower, and near the tops of the towers were rows of huge eye-like openings, from which issued the bolts of red and violent flame I have mentioned before. The many-colored forest had been burned away by these flames in a league-wide swath of devastation, even to the walls, and there was nothing but a stretch of black, vaporing desert between the mobile towers and the city. Then, even as I gazed, the long, leaping beams began to assail the craggy ramparts, and the topmost parapets were melting like lava beneath them. It was a scene of utmost terror and grandeur, but a moment later it was blotted from my vision by the buildings among which we had now plunged. The great lepidopterous creatures who bore me went on with the speed of airy questing eagles. In the course of that flight, I was hardly capable of conscious thought or volition. I lived only in the breathless and giddy freedom of aerial movement, or dreamlike levitation above the labyrinthine maze of stone immensitudes and marvels. It was without actual cognizance of much that I beheld in that stupendous babble of architectural imageries, and only afterward, in the more tranquil light of recollection, could I give coherent form and meaning to many of my impressions. My senses were stunned by the vastness and strangeness of it all. I realized but dimly the cataclysmic ruin that was being loosed upon the city behind us, and the doom from which we were fleeing. I knew that war was being made with unearthly weapons and engineeries, by inimical powers that I could not imagine, for a purpose beyond my conception. But to me, it all had the elemental confusion and vague and personal horror of some cosmic catastrophe. We flew deeper and deeper into the city, Broad platform roofs and terrace-like tiers of balconies flowed away beneath us, and the pavements raced like darkling streams at some enormous depth. Severe cubicular spires and square monoliths were all about and above us, and we saw on some of the roofs the dark Atlantean people of the city, moving slowly and statuesquely, or standing in attitudes of cryptic resignation and despair, with their faces toward the flaming cloud. All were weaponless, and I saw no engineeries anywhere such as might be used for purposes of military defense. Swiftly as we flew, the climbing cloud was swifter, and the darkness of its intermittently glowing dome had overarched the town, while its spidery filaments had meshed the further heavens and would soon attach themselves to the opposite horizon. The buildings darkened and lightened with the recurrent fulguration, and I felt in all my tissues the painful pulsing of the thunderous vibrations. Dully and vaguely, I realized that the winged beings who carried me between then were pilgrims to the Temple of the Flame. More and more I became aware of an influence that must have been that of the starry music emanating from the Temple's heart. There were soft, soothing vibrations in the air that seemed to absorb and nullify the tearing discords of the unheard thunder. I felt that we were entering a zone of mystic refuge, or sidereal and celestial security, and my troubled senses were both lulled and exalted. The gorgeous wings of the giant lepidopters began to slant downward. 
Before and beneath us, at some distance, I perceived a mammoth pile which I knew at once for the Temple of the Flame. Down, still down we went in the awesome space of the surrounding square, and then I was borne in through the lofty ever-open entrance, and along the high wall with its thousand columns. Pregnant with strange balsams, the dim, mysterious dusk enfolded us, and we seemed to be entering realms of pre-mundane antiquity and transstellar immensity, to be following a pillared cavern that led to the core of some ultimate star. It seemed that we were the last and only pilgrims, and also that the temple was deserted by its guardians, for we met no one in the whole extent of that column-crowded gloom. After a while, the dust began to lighten, and we plunged into a widening beam of radiance, and then into the vast central chamber in which soared the fountain of green fire. I remember only the impression of shadowy, flickering space, of a vault that was lost in the azure of infinity, of colossal and Memnonian statues that looked down from Himalaya-like altitudes, and, above all, the dazzling jet of flame that aspired from a pit in the pavement and rose into the air like the visible rapture of gods. But all this I saw for an instant only. Then I realized that the beings who bore me were flying straight toward the flame on level wings, without the slightest pause or flutter of hesitation. 6. The Inner Sphere there was no room for fear, no time for alarm in the dazed and chaotic turmoil of my sensations. I was stupefied by all that I had experienced, and moreover, the drug-like spell of the flame was upon me, even though I could not hear its fatal singing. I believe that I struggled a little, by some sort of mechanical muscular revulsion, against the tentacular arms that were wound about me. But the lepidopters gave no heed. It was plain that they were conscious of nothing but the mounting fire and its seductive music. I remember, however, that there was no sensation of actual heat, such as might have been expected, when we neared the soaring column. Instead, I felt the most ineffable thrilling in all my fibers, as if I were being permeated by waves of celestial energy and demiurgic ecstasy. Then we entered the flame. Like Angarth before me, I had taken it for granted that the fate of all those who flung themselves into the flame was an instant though blissful destruction. I expected to undergo a briefly flaring dissolution, followed by the nothingness of utter annihilation. The thing which really happened was beyond the boldest reach of speculative thought, and to give even a meager idea of my sensations would beggar the resources of language. The flame enfolded us like a green curtain, blotting from view the great chamber. Then it seemed to me that I was caught and carried to super-celestial heights, in an upward-rushing cataract of quintessential force and deific rapture, and an all-illuminating light. It seemed that I, and my companions, had achieved a godlike union with the flame, that every atom of our bodies had undergone a transcendental expansion and was winged with ethereal lightness. It was as if we no longer existed except as one divine indivisible entity, soaring beyond the trammels of matter, beyond the limits of time and space, to attain undreamable shores. Unspeakable was the joy, and infinite the freedom of that ascent, in which we seemed to overpass the zenith of the highest star. Then, as if we had risen with the flame to its culmination, had reached its very apex, we emerged and came to a pause. My senses were faint with exultation, my eyes blind with the glory of the fire, and the world on which I now gazed was a vast arabesque of unfamiliar forms and bewildering hues from another spectrum than the one to which our eyes are habituated. It swirled before my dizzy eyes like a labyrinth of gigantic jewels, with interweaving rays and tangled lusters, and only by slow degrees was I able to establish order and distinguish detail in the surging riot of my perceptions. 
All about me were endless avenues of superprismatic opal and jacinth, arches of pillars of ultraviolet gems, of transcendent sapphire, of unearthly ruby and amethyst, all suffused with a multi-tinted splendor. I appeared to be treading on jewels, and above me was a jeweled sky. Presently, with recovered equilibrium, with eyes adjusted to a new range of cognition, I began to perceive the actual features of the landscape. With the two moth-like beings still beside me, I was standing on a million flowered grass, among trees of a paradisal vegetation, with fruit, foliage, blossoms, and trunks whose very forms were beyond the conception of tridimensional life. The grace of their drooping boughs, of their fretted fronds, was inexpressible in terms of earthly line and contour, and they seemed to be wrought of pure ethereal substance, half translucent to the Empyrean light, which accounted for the gem-like impression I had first received. I breathed the nectar-laden air, and the ground beneath me was ineffably soft and resilient, as if it were composed of some higher form of matter than ours. My physical sensations were those of the utmost buoyancy and well-being, with no trace of fatigue or nervousness, such as might have been looked for after the unparalleled and marvelous events in which I had played a part. I felt no sense of mental dislocation or confusion, and, apart from my ability to recognize unknown colors of non-Euclidean forms, I began to experience a queer alteration and extension of tactility, through which it seemed that I was able to touch remote objects. The radiant sky was filled with many-colored suns like those that might shine on a world of some multiple solar system, but as I gazed their glory became softer and dimmer, and the brilliant luster of the trees and grass was gradually subdued, as if by encroaching twilight. I was beyond surprise in the boundless marvel and mystery of it all, and nothing, perhaps, would have seemed incredible, but if anything could have amazed me or defied belief, it was the human face, the face of my vanished friend, Giles Angarth, which now emerged from among the waning jewels of the forest, followed by that of another man whom I recognized from photographs as Felix Ebenley. They came out from beneath the gorgeous boughs and paused before me. Both were clad in lustrous fabrics, finer than oriental silk, and of no earthly cut or pattern. Their look was both joyous and meditative, and their faces had taken on a hint of the same translucency that characterized the ethereal fruits and blossoms. We have been looking for you, said Angarth. It occurred to me that, after reading my journal, you might be tempted to try the same experiment, if only to make sure whether the account was truth or fiction. This is Felix Ebenley, whom I believe you have never met. It surprised me when I found that I could hear his voice with perfect ease and clearness, and I wondered why the effect of the drug-soaked cotton should have died out so soon in my auditory nerves. Yet such details were trivial in the face of the astounding fact that I had found Angarth and Ebenley, that they, as well as I, had survived the unearthly rapture of the flame. "'Where are we?' I asked, after acknowledging his introduction. "'I confess that I am totally at a loss to comprehend what has happened.' "'We are now in what is called the inner dimension,' explained Angarth. "'It is a higher sphere of space and energy and matter than the one into which we were precipitated from Crater Ridge,' and the only entrance is through the singing flame in the city of Edmos. The inner dimension is born of the fiery fountain and sustained by it, and those who fling themselves into the flame are lifted thereby to the superior plane of vibration. For them the outer worlds no longer exist. The nature of the flame itself is not known, except that it is a fountain of pure energy, springing from the central rock beneath Edmos, and passing beyond mortal ken by virtue of its own ardency. 
He paused and seemed to be peering attentively at the winged entities who still lingered at my side. Then he continued. I haven't been here long enough to learn very much myself, but I have found out a few things, and Ebonly and I have established a sort of telepathic communication with the other beings who have passed through the flame. Many of them have no spoken language, nor organs of speech, and their very methods of thought are basically different from ours, because of their divergent lines of sense development and the varying conditions of the worlds from which they come, but we are able to communicate a few images. The persons who came with you are trying to tell me something, he went on. You and they, it seems, are the last pilgrims who will enter Edmos and attain the inner dimension. War is being made on the flame and its guardians by the rulers of the outer lands, because so many of their people have obeyed the lure of the singing fountain and vanished into the higher sphere. Even now their armies have closed in upon Edmos and are blasting the city's ramparts with the force bolts of their moving towers. I told them what I had seen comprehending now much that had been obscure heretofore. He listened gravely and then said, It has long been feared that such war would be made sooner or later. There were many legends in the outer lands concerning the flame and the fate of those who succumbed to its attraction. But the truth is not known or is guessed only by a few. Many believe, as I did, that the end is destruction, and by some who suspect its existence, the inner dimension is hated as a thing that lures idle dreamers away from worldly reality. It is regarded as a lethal and pernicious chimera, as a mere poetic dream, or a sort of opium paradise. There are a thousand things to tell you regarding the inner sphere and the laws and conditions of being to which we are now subject after the revibration of all our component atoms in the flame. But at present there is no time to speak further, since it is highly probable that we are all in grave danger, that the very existence of the inner dimension, as well as our own, is threatened by the inimical forces that are destroying Edmos. There are some who say that the flame is impregnable, and that its pure essence will defy the blasting of all inferior beams, and its source remain impenetrable to the lightnings of the outer lands. But most are fearful of disaster, and expect the failure of the fountain itself when Edmos is riven to the central rock. Because of this imminent peril, we must not tarry longer. There is a way which affords egress from the inner sphere to another and remoter cosmos in a second infinity, a cosmos unconceived by mundane astronomers or by the astronomers of the worlds about Edmos. The majority of the pilgrims, after a term of sojourn here, have gone on to the worlds of this other universe, and Evanly and I have waited only for your coming before following them. We must make haste and delay no more, or doom will overtake us. Even as he spoke, the two moth-like entities, seeming to resign me to the care of my human friends, arose in the jewel-tinted air and sailed in long level flight above the paradisal perspectives whose remoter avenues were lost in glory. Angarth and Ebonly had now stationed themselves beside me, and one took me by the left arm and the other by the right. Try to imagine that you are flying, said Angarth. In this sphere, levitation and flight are possible through willpower, and you will soon acquire the ability. We shall support and guide you, however, till you have grown accustomed to the new conditions and are independent of such help. I obeyed this injunction and formed a mental image of myself in the act of flying. I was amazed by the clearness and verisimilitude of the thought picture, and still more by the fact that the picture was becoming an actuality. With little sense of effort, but with exactly the same feeling that characterizes a levitational dream, the three of us were soaring from the jeweled ground slanting easily and swiftly upward through the glowing air. 
Any attempt to describe the experience would be foredoomed to futility, since it seemed that a whole range of new senses had been opened up in me, together with corresponding thought symbols for which there are no words in human speech. I was no longer Philip Hastain, but a larger, stronger, and freer entity, differing as much from my former self as the personality developed beneath the influence of hashish or kava would differ. The dominant feeling was one of immense joy and liberation, coupled with a sense of imperative haste, of the need to escape into other realms where the joy would endure eternal and unthreatened. My visual perceptions as we flew above the burning lucent woods were marked by intense aesthetic pleasure. It was as far above the normal delight afforded by agreeable imagery as the forms and colors of this world were beyond the cognition of normal eyes. Every changing image was a source of veritable ecstasy, and the ecstasy mounted as the whole landscape began to brighten again and return to the flashing, scintillating glory it had worn when I first beheld it. 7. The Destruction of Edmos We soared at a lofty elevation, looking down on numberless miles of labyrinthine forest, on long, luxurious meadows, on voluptuously folded hills, on palatial buildings, and waters that were clear as the pristine lakes and rivers of Eden. It all seemed to quiver and pulsate like one living effulgent, ethereal entity, and waves of radiant rapture passed from sun to sun in the splendor-crowded heaven. As we went on, I noticed again, after an interval, that partial dimming of the light, that somnolent, dreamy saddening of the colors, to be followed by another period of ecstatic brightening. The slow tidal rhythm of this process appeared to correspond to the rising and falling of the flame, as Angarth had described it in his journal, and I suspected immediately that there was some connection. No sooner had I formulated this thought than I became aware that Angarth was speaking. And yet, I am not sure whether he spoke or whether his worded thought was perceptible to me through another sense than that of physical audition. At any rate, I was cognizant of his comment. You are right. The waning and waxing of the fountain and its music is perceived in the inner dimension as a clouding and lightning of all visual images. Our flight began to swiffen, and I realized that my companions were employing all their psychic energies in an effort to redouble our speed. The lands below us blurred to a cataract of streaming color, a sea of flowing luminosity, and we seemed to be hurtling onward like stars through the fiery air. The ecstasy of that endless soaring, the anxiety of that precipitate flight from an unknown doom are incommunicable, but I shall never forget them, nor the state of ineffable communion and understanding that existed between the three of us. The memory of it all is housed in the deepest, most abiding cells of my brain. Others were flying beside and above and beneath us now in the fluctuant glory, pilgrims of hidden worlds and occult dimensions proceeding as we ourselves toward that other cosmos of which the inner sphere was the antechamber. These beings were strange and outré beyond belief in their corporeal forms and attributes, and yet I took no thought of their strangeness, but felt toward them the same conviction of fraternity that I felt towards Angarth and Ebonly. As we still went on, it appeared to me that my two companions were telling me many things, communicating, by what means I am not sure, much that they had learned in their new existence with a grave urgency as if, perhaps, the time for imparting this information might well be brief, ideas were expressed and conveyed which I could never have understood amid terrestrial circumstances. Things that were inconceivable in terms of the five senses, or in abstract symbols or philosophic or mathematic thought, were made plain to me as the letters of the alphabet.
Certain of these data, however, are roughly conveyable or suggestible in language. I was told of the gradual process of initiation into the life of the new dimension, of the powers gained by the neophyte during his term of adaptation, of the various recondite aesthetic joys experienced through a mingling and multiplying of all the perceptions, of the control acquired over natural forces and over matter itself, so that raiment could be woven and buildings reared solely through an act of volition. I learned also of the laws that would control our passage to the further cosmos, and the fact that such passage was difficult and dangerous for anyone who had not lived a certain length of time in the inner dimension. Likewise, I was told that no one could return to our present plane from the higher cosmos, even as no one could go backward through the flame into Edmos. Angarth and Ebonly had dwelt long enough in the inner dimension, they said, to be eligible for entrance to the worlds beyond, and they thought that I too could escape through their assistance, even though I had not yet developed the faculty of spatial equilibrium necessary to sustain those who dared the interspheric path and its dreadful subjacent gulfs alone. There were boundless, unforeseeable realms, planet on planet, universe on universe, to which we might attain, and among whose prodigies and marvels we could dwell or wander indefinitely. In these worlds, our brains would be attuned to the comprehension of vaster and higher scientific laws, and states of entity beyond those of our present dimensional milieu. I have no idea of the duration of our flight, since, like everything else, my sense of time was completely altered and transfigured. Relatively speaking, we may have gone on for hours, but it seemed to me that we had crossed an area of that supernal terrain for whose transit many years or even centuries might well have been required. Even before we came within sight of it, a clear pictorial image of our destination had arisen in my mind, doubtless through some sort of thought transference. I seemed to envision a stupendous mountain range, with Alp on Celestial Alp, higher than the summer cumuli on earth, and above them all the horn of an ultraviolet peak, whose head was enfolded in a hueless and spiral cloud, touched with the sense of invisible chromatic overtones that seemed to come down upon it from skies beyond the zenith. I knew that the way to the outer cosmos was hidden in the high cloud. On and on we soared, and at length the mountain range appeared on the far horizon, and I saw the paramount peak of ultraviolet with its dazzling crown of cumulus. Nearer still we came till the strange volutes of cloud were almost above us, towering to the heavens and vanishing among the very colored suns, and we saw the gleaming forms of pilgrims who preceded us as they entered the swirling folds. At this moment the sky and the landscape had flamed again to their culminating brilliance. They burned with a thousand hues and lusters, so that the sudden unlooked-for eclipse which now occurred was all the more complete and terrible. Before I was conscious of anything amiss, I seemed to hear a despairing cry from my friends, who must have felt the oncoming calamity through a subtler sense than any of which I was yet capable. Then, beyond the high and luminescent alp of our destination, I saw the mounting of a wall of darkness, dreadful and instant, positive and palpable, that rose everywhere and toppled like some Atlantean wave upon the iris suns and the fiery-colored vistas of the inner dimension. We hung irresolute in the shadowed air, powerless and hopeless before the impending catastrophe, and saw that the darkness had surrounded the entire world and was rushing upon us from all sides. It ate the heavens, blotted the outer suns, and the vast perspectives over which we had flown appeared to shrink and shrivel like a fire-blackened paper. We seemed to wait alone for one terrible instant in a center of dwindling light on which the cyclonic forces of night and destruction 
were impinging with torrential rapidity. The center shrank to a mere point, and then the darkness was upon us like an overwhelming maelstrom, like the falling and crashing of cyclopean walls. I seemed to go down with a wreck of shattered worlds in a roaring sea of vortical space and force, to descend into some infrastellar pit, some ultimate limbo to which the shards of forgotten suns and systems are flung. Then, after a measureless interval, there came the sensation of violent impact, as if I had fallen among these shards at the bottom of the universal night. I struggled back to consciousness with slow, prodigious effort, as if I were crushed beneath some irremovable weight, beneath the lightless and inert debris of galaxies. It seemed to require the labors of a titan to lift my lids, and my body and limbs were heavy, as if they had been turned to some denser element than human flesh, or had been subjected to the gravitation of a grosser planet than the earth. My mental processes were benumbed and painful, and confused to the last degree, but at length I realized that I was lying on a riven and tilted pavement, among gigantic blocks of fallen stone. Above me, the light of a livid heaven came down among overturned and jagged walls that no longer supported their colossal dome. Close beside me, I saw a fuming pit from which a ragged rift extended through the floor, like the chasm wrought by an earthquake. I could not recognize my surroundings for a time, but at last, with a toilsome groping of thought, I understood that I was lying in the ruined temple of Edmos, and that the pit whose gray and acrid vapors rose beside me was that from which the fountain of singing flame had issued. It was a scene of stupendous havoc and devastation. The wrath that had been visited upon Edmos had left no wall nor pylon of the temple standing. I stared at the blighted heavens from an architectural ruin in which the remains of An and Angkor would have been mere rubble heaps. With Herculean effort, I turned my head away from the smoking pit, whose thin, sluggish fumes curled upward in phantasmal coils where the green ardor of the flame had soared and sung. Not until then did I perceive my companions. Angarth, still insensible, was lying near at hand, and just beyond him I saw the pale, contorted face of Evanly, whose lower limbs and body were pinned down by the rough and broken pediment of a fallen pillar. Striving, as in some eternal nightmare, to throw off the leaden, clinging weight of my inertia, and able to bestir myself only with the most painful slowness and laboriousness, I got to my feet and went over to Evanly. Angarth, I saw at a glance, was uninjured, and would presently regain consciousness, but Evanly, crushed by the monolithic mass of stone, was dying swiftly, and even with the help of a dozen men I could not have released him from his imprisonment, nor could I have done anything to palliate his agony. He tried to smile with gallant and piteous courage as I stooped above him. It's no use. I'm going in a moment, he whispered. Goodbye, Estane, and tell Angarth goodbye for me, too. His tortured lips relaxed, his eyelids dropped, and his head fell back on the temple pavement. With an unreal, dreamlike horror, almost without emotion, I saw that he was dead. The exhaustion that still beset me was too profound to permit of thought or feeling. It was like the first reaction that follows the awakening from a drug debauch. My nerves were like burnt-out wires, my muscles dead and unresponsive as clay. My brain was ashen and gutted, as if a great fire had burned within it and gone out. Somehow, after an interval of whose length my memory is uncertain, I managed to revive Angarth, and he sat up dully and dazedly. When I told him that Evanly was dead, my words appeared to make no impression upon him. 
and I wondered for a while if he understood. Finally, rousing himself a little with evident difficulty, he peered at the body of our friend, and seemed to realize in some measure the horror of the situation. But I think he would have remained there for hours, or perhaps for all time, in his utter despair and lassitude, if I had not taken the initiative. Come, I said, with an attempt at firmness. We must get out of this. Where to? he queried, dully. The flame has failed at its source, and the inner dimension is no more. I wish I were dead like Ebony. I might as well be, judging from the way I feel. We must find our way back to Crater Ridge, I said. Surely we can do it if the interdimensional portals have not been destroyed. Angarth did not seem to hear me, but he followed obediently when I took him by the arm and began to seek an exit from the temple's heart, among the roofless halls and overturned columns. My recollections of our return are dim and confused, and full of the tediousness of some interminable delirium. I remember looking back at Evanley, lying white and still beneath the massive pillar that would serve as his eternal monument, and I recall the mountainous ruins of the city, in which it seemed that we were the only living beings. It was a wilderness of chaotic stone, of fused obsidian-like blocks, where streams of molten lava still ran in the mighty chasms, or poured like torrents adown unfathomable pits that had opened in the ground, and I remember seeing, amid the wreckage, the charred bodies of those dark colossi who were the people of Edmos and the warders of the flame. Like pygmies lost in some shattered fortalice of the giants, we stumbled onward, strangling in mephitic and metallic vapors, reeling with weariness, dizzy with the heat that emanated everywhere to surge upon us in buffeting waves. The way was blocked by overthrown buildings, by toppled towers and battlements, over which we climbed precariously and toilsomely. And often we were compelled to divagate from our direct course by enormous rifts that seemed to cleave the foundations of the world. The moving towers of the wrathful outer lords had withdrawn, their armies had disappeared on the plain beyond Edmos, when we staggered over the riven, shapeless, and scoria crags that had formed the city's ramparts. Before us was nothing but desolation, a fire-blackened and vapor-vaulted expanse in which no tree or blade of grass remained. Across this waste we found our way to the slope of violet grass above the plain, which had lain beyond the path of the invaders' bolts. There the guiding monoliths, reared by a people of whom we were never to learn even the name, still looked down upon the fuming desert and the mounded rack of Edmos. And there, at length, we came once more to the grayish-green columns that were the gateway between the worlds. Hi, I'm Jesse. I am Paul. Hi, I'm Trish. Hi, I'm Connor. And hi, I'm Tommy. And we're going to talk about the city of singing flame, or is it the city of the singing flame? I, I always am a little hard-pressed to find out. Which is it? Anybody know? It's the city of the singing flame, I think. Yeah. <laughs> okay. To these. To these, okay. And there is a sequel, the city, yeah, yeah. Um, which is beyond the singing flame, I believe. Uh, and I was thinking it's, about... I was thinking it's about, an onion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, uh, yeah. Spoiler! <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I was thinking about, like, should should I have... Uh, asked Tommy to record that too. Um, and I don't know the answer yet because I haven't read it. Um, but I, it got me to thinking for a guy 
who basically has no novels at all. Um, he's a pretty famous guy, right? Clark Ashton Smith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, for a guy who like yeah, he has one novel. I've read it. He wrote it when he's fourteen. It didn't come out until like two thousand twelve or something like that. And it is very different from his his other works because it he's fourteen years old. Um, he's bursting with ideas. And he's full of uh, uh, it, it. Really reads like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign uh, set in the Arabian Nights, and it's really fun and hilariously funny. But it actually has some stuff that you see in here. Like there's a a, a flame, just like you have in She. Um, it's an uh, in an underground uh, cavern. Uh, it's a great, it's a great, really fun novel. I I don't know what the the copyright status of it is, Tommy. But um, if if you want, I'll dig into that. And it's because it's a weird situation because he was. He wrote it when he's 14. I don't think it got any publication until its first publication from Hippocampus, I want to say about 10 years ago. But I will um, say this about Smith. Uh-huh. Uh, like, two, like two things. Like one, his, I, I think he's, the more I read him, the more masterful I think he is. Um, but two, he's also really hard to, to audio uh, book read for. You did pretty good. He uses so many words. And uh, so many words. Honestly, honestly, this is baby version of his, his writing is very simple in this one, I thought, compared to like his poetry. When I look at his vocabulary, I realized like, because I, I I did take a listen just to re-familiarize myself with the material and also to give myself some feedback. And I realized like, man, so many of these words, I remember looking up how to pronounce them. And I realized that I don't always know what they even. (laughs) because i still i'm like well i know how to pronounce it but what does it mean and like he uses like supernal a million times and i think it's like i think it's just sort of like a an archaic word for supernatural but i probably should be looking that up right now (laughs) i i did uh on wednesday i did a show uh oh no it was friday so not that long ago i did a show with eric uh rabkin on uh three sentence Prose pastel is what he's calling it. Prose pastels are basically prose poems. Um, three sentences. Mm-hmm. Here's the vocab from from that three sentence story. Splenetic. That's the very first word <laughs> in the story. Uh, iridescent, arabesque, damascene, um, nymphalepsy, implacable, mean, m i e n, mean, and rutilant. Like I knew at least half of those. Nymphalepsy, I could figure out, kind of, but still. Rutilant mm-hmm. and splenetic, okay. Y- you know, having to do with the spleen. But, yeah, it's like, j- he could have just said bad-tempered <laughs> or ill-tempered, right? No, he has his own vocabulary. So, this is probably the least difficult Clark Ashton Smith story I've ever read. It's it's like... um as a sentence by sentence story, it's a lot simpler even than the stuff that's in Weird Tales, uh, for vocabulary, which I was very surprised by. I'd never seen him, except for that, I was saying that novel he wrote when he was 14. It's called The Black Diamonds. Um, other than that, I haven't seen him use such, uh, few incredible vocabulary words in 
such a long piece. And I think this is actually one of his longest pieces ever anyways, other than that novel. And I was thinking yeah, if you combined it is. with like, the sequel, that might make a novel. But, um, yeah, sorry. No, it's totally great. No, I, I just, I think, uh, and by the way, just to correct myself, I did look up Supernova as being or coming from on high, heavenly ethereal. Um, but I just, I, I just mean to say, like, even for, you're, I think you're right. I think it is a more simple one of his, but even for his simple stuff, it's still just ripe with words where you're yeah. like, well, let me make sure I at least know how to pronounce that. Um, and I think it's, but I think he's masterful with the language. I think, um, his construction is good too. Um, and, well, there's more, but I'll... Well, there's, there, there's the shape of the plot, which I think is really excellent in this. Um, I also think this is a very interesting story, and I can see why a lot of people like it. In the, in the Emperor of Dreams documentary, they talk about this being his most famous work, and I can kind of see that because it's the most accessible uh, in a <laughs> large degree. The, I uh, think it's also that um it's this one specifically it seems like lots of writers like it and i can understand why it speaks to writers in Absolutely. particular yeah um i wanted to uh, roast you on one word the one word i heard that was mispronounced uh i believe is pronounced sidereal uh what does sidereal mean it's ha- well, <laughs> having to do with the day right <laughs> i always thought it was sidereal uh so, well uh it is sidereal uh, yeah, lots of people mispronounce it sidereal, but uh, I, I don't. Is... Re- I don't remember how you said it, Tommy. But I was like, I, I think he means sidereal. <laughs> uh, so you know that... what? I don't. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, and I thought that seems like one that I would have definitely looked up. Um, which then makes me wonder if the thing that I found for the pronunciation was then like like led me astray. But either way, it doesn't. It doesn't really know. matter because we're we're all working with the same limited vocabulary that Clark Ashton Smith has the opposite of. It's, yeah, it's, considering his vocabulary, any mispronunciations is completely I, understandable. I'm certainly. <laughs> I'm. Uh, I, I would not blown away by his knowing Lepidopterus or whatever <laughs> that was. <laughs> that's uh, that's a butterfly, right? Lepidopter tree. Yeah, yeah. Which he uses a lot in this because of the the stuff. Um, I wanted to ask uh, if uh, Paul, we're going to do uh, Logan's Run. Did you think of Logan's mm-hmm. Run <laughs> in the, with the carnival or what's it, circular yeah. or whatever it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah yes, yeah, exactly. The whole yeah, carnival festival. Yes, festival? last what, what day. Is yes. it? La- yeah. Anyways, they there's like in the center of the room, there's a whole bunch of people swirling around, and then they go into this flame, and they go to the flame and, and rise and up, then, then and they then die. they well, no, they they trans well, they, they, they transcend they to get reborn or something, right? <laughs> Whether yes, they, they die or not. Yeah, yeah. They, they go. They're transported to a higher dimension, but it looks like it sounds like until. Our narrator actually goes through it, goes through it themselves. That yo, know, yeah, this is this is a fatal act. I mean, it's like the whole moth to a flame is. Yeah, it's the metaphor that he's working on, right? Very much so, especially with the Lepidopterus. Uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's like okay, so it's like I see what you're doing here. Oh wait, no, I didn't see what you're doing here. We're doing multi-dimensional, higher dimension transcendence. Okay, let's go with that. And it it, it is his theme. Like if you start reading. Clark Ashton Smith, he's really into the body, like uh, describing s- smells, describing rocks. He's really into material. 
Um, and he's obsessed with death and beauty. Those are like his things, you know. Lovecraft, he, he likes, uh, architecture, <laughs> the stars, uh, and immortality and bearing the past, right? Those are his themes. Um, mm-hmm. Clark Ashton Smith is, um, sensual body, as in sexuality, um, reproduction, uh, through death. Uh, it, it's a theme endlessly happens in his stories. Um, and then you've got this, uh, this, the beauty of those things. And we've got all three of those things here, right? The siren call of the city. What's this flame mean? What are all these creatures? Where's it all going? Uh, ultimately, he doesn't know the answers, right? Because <laughs> he's, you know, this is not a real world, but he's obsessed with, with thinking about it and telling about it and, and, and so what I liked about this one is he, his structure is really good. A lot of the times when you're reading a short story by Clark Ashton Smith, you think, Oh my God, sentence by sentence. This is beautiful. These are some incredible scenes. And then you say, yeah, but he didn't really do anything with it. Like it's just, it's just, for, it's just a, a show. Whereas with this one, I get the sense that the structure makes it more, more appreciable and uh, I can't stronger. agree with you about the structure, Jesse, because to me it feels like it's missing the last chapter. Well, uh, a lot of people agree with you. That's why they're asking for the sequel, right? <laughs> Which you know, I haven't it's, read. It's very odd because it starts out as a traditionally framed story. And then the narrator gets inserted into the story and then there's no outer, you know, there's no wrap up frame. There's, there's just, uh, yeah, they don't even get back to earth. They get back to the gateway. It's a little disconcerting. So I looked up the text to make sure that the audio didn't get cut off at the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get that. Well, I think people, uh, I, I, Here's the truth, right? Is he didn't have an ending as usual. Um, mm. uh, his typical way of doing it is he just kills the main characters, whoever they are. Um, <laughs> now the problem with this is because he's framed it with a guy saying, I'm going to tell you about this thing. And that guy is kind of Clark Ashton Smith. The outer narrator is kind mm-hmm. of Clark Ashton Smith, but not really. He can't, he can't kill him off at the end without people saying, what? Right. Uh, unless it says this document is now found in a cylinder, uh, falling from the sky yeah, or whatever. Yeah, he right? threw the right. cylinder through the gate. That's right. Hey, yeah, that would work. Yeah. And Clark Ashton Smith comes in at the end and says, I found this cylinder when taking a hike. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is, you know, a way of telling stories. Um, so, uh, I, I, I wondered if Angarth was. Yeah. I, 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 wondered, I wondered if Angarth was more of Smith just because he was the one who was out in California. In the Sierras, and yeah, it's, I think they're all him because he's the artist and the um, and the illustrator. He's the no, uh, illustrator and the writer, right? And then his friend, who's also a writer of weird weird fiction, right? He's all of them. He's all three guys. Um, that, that makes sense. Some uh, in the documentary they talk about him. Uh, somebody speculates it's him and H.P. Lovecraft go for a hike, which never happened, right? They never met in real life, but um, there are some. Things that are very interesting about the real life connections uh, in here. But f- before we go there, I wanted the, to ask. Uh, 
Tommy, where, which version did you read from? Because I have two PDFs, but I think you didn't read from either one. I think you, you had sent me a link to some, like an online version of it. Probably the Eldritch Dark. Is that the, maybe it was like all E-text? in like white lettering, lettering. I, I, it's somewhere yeah, in my, like our, our chat. Uh, okay. I could go back. No, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. It, I, it matches the text that you read matches mostly what's on the Elder Eldritch Dark web, website, which is like the best e-text versions of. Yeah, that is what it was. It was okay. Eldritch Dark. So each version is slightly different. Um, I'm not sure how much of that is attributable to editorship, uh, where it was published originally. Uh, but since the Eldritch Dark version probably is the one, uh, based on the date, it's probably the one that's in the, uh, Arkham House along with the sequel. Um, we probably would have Smith's hands on that as well. It was published during his lifetime. The original version, 1930, I want to say 1931. I'll just look it up. City of Singing. <laughs> or is it, let's see. Uh, yeah. I have to just type in singing because I can't remember how many. Uh, okay. So yeah, July 1931, Wonder Story starts slightly different. Um, I'll just read that. It says forward. We had been friends for a decade or more, and I knew Giles Angarth as well as anyone could purport to know him. So that second line is, or second part of that sentence is same. Yet the thing was no less a mystery to me than it was to others at the time, and it is still a mystery. Um, the journal, which you, you're saying is chapter one, which is on the Eldritch Dark, uh, is the is the next one. You said July first, nineteen thirty eight. It's originally July thirty first, nineteen thirty, which mm. matches what we have. In this Wonder Stories, as in July 1931 issue, right? And then a moment later, it says, uh, or just before the intro, uh, or in just in the journal, it says, I've been gone for two years. So this is actually set in the future, originally. Yeah, I thought so. I remembered actually thinking how it was interesting in the later part when um, our Philip Hassane comes into the into the narrative he talks about how he finally got his affairs all tucked away and right. life was nice and easy in like 1939 and i was thinking how that was i mean granted he was in the usa so i guess he was away from it but like there was you know kind of like no obviously no mention of the, the beginnings of world war ii and so it was just like interesting to think about like looking into the future and obviously not knowing about this massive historical event that would have been rocketing the country and maybe making or a little less likely. There's travel. always a war in Europe. That's how I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly. So, so uh, it, it, the changes um, in the uh, 19 in the in the sequel, or sorry, the reprint, uh, which was in Startling Stories, and that's where it gets the designation that is uh, uh, Science Fiction Hall of Fame story. This is something that ran in uh, I I want to say Wonder Stories as well. But startling stories and, uh, Harry Warner Jr. wanted it included in there and he explained why in a little, um, explanation saying how great Clark Ashton Smith, he's saying of all the living writers of fantasy, I believe only A. Merritt can compare with C.A. Smith as a word painter who makes the reader sense the utter, utter, utter otherworldliness of an alien 
planet. Um, and I'm not sure this is an alien planet. Um, there is a word that I want to throw down and see if you guys remember and what, what makes you think of, because I was thinking, I'd never read this story when I sent it to you, Tommy. I, I knew it oh, existed. Really? Uh, no, yeah, I, I tend to process and look at it and say, ooh, this looks good, but I'll read around, but I don't tend to read the actual story until I'm going to make notes. Um, so the word that kept coming up into my mind while I was reading this was Carcosa. Did anybody else think of that while they were reading this? No, but I can see how you made that connection for sure. There's there's a there's a bunch of layering on Carcosa. Um, obviously, it's the Robert W. Chambers word um, we know, uh, and then it was in True Detective. Uh, I want to say the first season. First season. Yeah, it's True Detective, right? Right, and right, right, and also things like the Yellow King role playing game. Yeah, anything anything Yellow King related, right? Any, yeah, anything Yellow King related. But uh, I didn't get that feeling because. The, especially the super the the world within the world felt more of a positive place than Carcosa, which feels evil and oh, yeah. not uh, and uh, and dark. Whereas the world within the world feels almost feels more like a a heaven or a higher level of being. I um, the author I kept thinking about about in this story a lot. Well, one of the authors uh, I'll talk about the other one later was Gene Wolfe, and yep. in, Gene, Gene Wolfe. A because of the vocabulary because Gene Wolf Gene, yeah he Gene, likes his vocab Gene, too and yes Gene, Gene Wolf's vocab is equal to Colac Aston Schmidt's and his Schmidt's and his uh, desire to expand it and use words that he could he could have used bad temper but no Gene Wolf would do, would do the exact same splenetic thing. yeah yeah but um, also the, in particular the Gene Wolf work I was thinking of was the Wizard Knight which has a different levels of reality that are main character Abel winds up going to and going up and down levels of reality. And as we go deeper and then deeper again in the suggestion, there's even deeper. I kept thinking, oh, this is like the higher levels of, uh, of the, of the nine worlds of the wizard Knight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the I other one, I'll, I'll, I'll talk later about the other author that was, uh, I was uh, inspired by. You will not be surprised who that is. Oh, what were you going to hey, say, um, Connor? Oh, sorry. No, sorry. You had something for Connor. I just, I wanted to not get too far away from the, uh, you started to talk about the structure of the book, and I, I would like to circle back to that. Oh, absolutely, we're gonna we're going to. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, why, why, why? What do you know about Carcosa, Connor? Um, okay, so, well, I know that it's um, I know it from the King in Yellow mm-hmm. uh, cycle of stories, um, but that's about it. But I can see exactly how you're making this this connection, right? It's um, this alien city on another world. Mm-hmm. Sort of much like Carcosa, under alien stars. It's not as sinister, um, right? In in uh, this, this is not as sinister. It's, it's not. But, it's more sirens you know, than than uh, more sexy and attractive than it is uh, hor- hor- horrific and compelling. Yeah, I mean, I would like you get the sense that this city is a relatively safe place, just because. Hastain, when he, um, oh no, it'd be Angarth, I think, mm-hmm. initially. When he starts to venture in, at first he's quite rare, wary, but he realizes that all these alien beings are not a threat to him. And, uh, he can just walk around and they don't care. They don't treat him like he he's still unusual. brings his gun though, because he's an American. <laughs> yeah, you gotta. 
Uh, uh, the gun never gets used, though. And in fact, don't both uh, don't both uh, uh, inner and outer narrator strap on guns? Yeah, and sandwiches. They totally do. Sandwiches, <laughs> coffee, thermos, and a gun. I mean, yeah. it's a Very picnic, fair. right? You got to go out. Thermos and coffee for the hike. That's right. Yeah. Thermos and coffee for the hike drove me nuts as a hiker because I'm like, you want water? You do not want something that's just gonna. Well, you can get water on the on the hill side. Um, so, uh, you guys may not know, but I'm, I'm, uh, years ago, I went deep into this stuff. Um, probably even before that show or may, yeah, it gotta be before whatever true detective came out originally. Um, I got deep into this stuff and I read the, what's, um, the Robert W. Chambers yellow yellow books and yellow the, stories. The King, King and yellow, yellow yeah. yeah, it's yeah. the whole book is called The King in Yellow, and there's like a lot of unrelated stuff or part like the Demacel Dees. That's actually a really interesting story, but it's not really related that much to mm. the rest. Like it's it, it is kind of a it's more like the Elf Trap or it's like a time travel story. It's it's really good. It's in the yellow um, King in Yellow book. Uh, which is a collection of short stories. But he didn't make that up. Carcosa is not from uh, Robert W. Chambers. It was invented by Ambrose Bierce. And Ambrose Bierce really? was a California boy. And he lived not too far from where uh, Clark Ashton Smith lived. Um, it's about two hours uh, ride or drive, right? But um, it's the same country. It's he, he, Auburn is more mountainous, but Clark Ashton's uh, uh, Ambrose Bierce was a friend of George Sterling's, who was his was Clark Ashton Smith's mentor and who made him uh, a continental famous kid. Like uh, when I did look up Clark Ashton Smith many years ago in newspapers. There is one week where he's on every newspaper. He's uh, often on the front page or, you know, very prominently placed with a photograph of Wonderkind poet, uh, child poet from California lives, lives, uh, in a barn or so whatever, it, whatever the line is. Um, and that was George Sterling's doing. Uh, newspapers were hungry. They were sucking up any kind of interesting story and stealing from each other. But that story got syndicated, so like even local uh, Vancouver Sun uh, that year got that story, and every every city paper had that story. So he was like, he hit a high star of fame, and then his career sort of started right after that, which is kind of funny because that's not usually how people go. But uh, Sterling was uh, his best friends were George Sterling and George Sterling's writing is a little bit like Clark Ashton Smith's. He's got a story or a poem called a wine of wizardry. You can see right in the title, it has two things that Clark Ashton Smith likes, right? Wine <laughs> and wizardry. Um, and he was a poet primarily, right? Uh, George Sterling, but his best friends were Ambrose Bierce and Jack London and Sterling uh, invited, it's mentioned in the documentary, Sterling invited, uh, Clark Ashton Smith to come visit both. And he's like, ah, I'm, I'm not feeling it. And he didn't, he didn't ever meet Jack London or, or maybe he did meet Jack London, but he never met Ambrose Bierce. But, uh, th you know, those are tit titans of American literature and international literature at that time. And then, uh, 
in that San Francisco, I want to say 1886, uh, newspaper is a very short story. It's like 10 minutes long called An Inhabitant of Carcosa. And if you read it, it, it reads like beers. But what is a, and you know, most people haven't read all of Ambrose Beers, but they have read, um, what's his famous short story, uh, set during the Civil War? From, you know, An occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. You got it. It's, it's, it's a lot like that. Uh, Owl Creek Bridge is, uh, it's kind of like a, uh, it's a, it's a death story. It's about a guy who thinks he's alive when he's actually dead. Um, that's what an inhabitant of Carcosa is. The, the guy's walking along and saying, I, I, I don't recognize this landscape. And then he realizes, oh yeah, my wife and kid are saying I'm sick and I have the illness, but they're, they're, they don't exist. I'm from somewhere else. I'm from Carcosa over this next hill. And then he starts recognizing the landscape and the landscape is, dry but it's california why he starts talking about the life uh the animals um which we don't get in this right we don't get almost any animals it's actually called out there's no birds there's no insects there's just these creatures and one of them is a lynx and like that is not an animal you get in you know uh colorado you have something else you have a cougar maybe what you have mm-hmm. in California's are lynx. And that's Ambrose Bierce transforming the actual landscape that he's going for a walk in into another world. And it's, it is like, it's literally a hike. And it's just a very short story. It's got uh, a bunch of other names like Halley, um, the Lake of Halley, which is in Carcosa in Robert W. Chambers. So, these guys are all, uh, we think of, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, you know, bo- Lens, uh, H.P. Lovecraft's Sathagua or whatever. And, you know, people are the Book of Ibon goes in this Robert E. Howard story. This was going on before these, uh, those guys. Clark Ashton Smith, I think, probably read an inhabitant of Carcosa and said, this is great. And then, you know, he did, I don't think he copied it. I think it's just these, the reason he thought it was great is because this is exactly what he did. He goes out in the woods and he sees a, a weird pair of boulders and starts speculating. I think that's entirely where the story came from is just these kind of weird guys. Uh, somebody uh, sent something in the chat, Colorado parks and wildlife. Is there, are there links in Colorado? There are in fact. In, in the same well, ones. I, I've never been to Colorado. I'm just saying, um, the landscape in uh, in Auburn, as a, as appears in the documentary about his house, and oh, you guys got to watch it because they go on the hike that inspires this story. And uh, I, I guess I, I that's why I was saying is I had remembered that City of Singing Flame is largely um, uh, s- central to that. Uh, and a couple of the, of his poems. They go on the hike, and it's now like a ski resort. Um, there's a lake, a uh, deep mountain tarn that's never been sounded. That's a real lake, right? Like, this is a real hike you can go on. You can go... It's almost like he was saying, Hey, H.P. Lovecraft, come come visit California. When you do, I'll take you to this place, and we can go to the city of Singing Flame. Mm. I can absolutely understand how uh, this idea, right, occurs... Like, like to both maybe Ambrose Bierce and, uh, Ashton, Clark Ashton Smith, because 
see like seeing the landscape from the documentary it is very um uh almost otherworldly mm-hmm. just in terms of the rock formations and so on but i think also i mean i've done this i'm not sure whether anyone else has done it when you've been out on a hike right that like that and you can kind of imagine like what if this was an alien world or what if um was walking. this was slightly yep. different walking does that makes your brain start going Mm-hmm. Sure. Or even the like, imagination. You, like I was in Sedona last year, uh, doing it on a hike, and I remember thinking at points, with all that like red rock, and there's this like kind of greenish uh, stuff that holds the what little moisture there is in the soil. They ask you not to step on it. Like it looks at times like an alien formation, and that's why they often go into the desert for like episodes of Star Trek or whatever. But <laughs> yeah, I did. I could totally see him getting that feeling of like, you know, where am I? Especially depending on what kind of substances Smith abused. I don't, I don't know. But well, like, they I, talk about, they talk uh, about that in the documentary too. And I, I believe it's, the, it's, it's just like with HP Lovecraft. And uh, I want to say with me too, like uh, the strongest drug I ever take is coffee. What does that do to you? It makes you a little bit nervous, wakes you up, makes you go think a little faster. <laughs> uh, but my dreams are, uh, very much like drug trips. I, I based on yeah. no experience with drugs. Um, uh, apparently, he's got a story called the Hashish uh, Eater, or is that uh, Lord Dunsany? Any in any case, no, that's it, that's Clark Ashton Smith. Is but, it okay? Um, yeah, yeah, but it's but you know it is very much in the vein of um, of yeah Lord Dunsany or who was the guy who did um, Confessions of an Opium, opium Eater. E- yeah, him or also um, Kubla Khan, right? I think also has Cole, Coleridge. Yeah. Coleridge, yeah. Yeah, yeah is uh, yeah Samuel Taylor Coleridge, but it's also partially sort of a hash dream or an opium dream. Um, it, it, but I think it really also, it, but, it, it uh, but drugs those drugs that do that to your brain that's in your brain already, right? For sure, and I think in those things, I mean, you just need to tap into be, it. They may be literally talking about those things, but I always always had the sense that they were more talking about just the creativity or using it as an excuse to really let their imagination run wild and think about these uh, fantasies, right? And these really wild psychedelic ideas that um, they can use those drugs as sort of an excuse to go in there and say, oh, I've got this character have, like either taking these drugs and look how crazy it's getting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, your your yeah, brain is think... manufacturing drugs for itself all day long, right? <laughs> so that's, all, that's yeah. what it does. They... Now, uh, when you take a, another drug, even alcohol, right? When you take a dr- any kind of drug, it affects your brain and it can pump up certain things. But some people have that naturally. If you read H.P. Lovecraft, I think there are some people who think that he was taking drugs. He's the opposite, right? He didn't take anything, not even alcohol, no, no cigarettes, right? Uh, although I, I did see Bobby Deary uh, tweet something really funny, and uh, it was like it was uh, he did actually take cocaine. <laughs> Lovecraft took cocaine, but it was for like a prescription, really for uh, tooth <laughs> something or something, right? Uh, uh, okay, it's, it's not, um, but it's like HPL it's cokehead. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, so in, in the documentary, they discuss that a little bit and it's sort of, and there's all these different people saying, Oh, maybe, yeah, what didn't, 
Didn't somebody give him uh, hash, some hash yeah. or something it like that? It was George Sterling. Um, yeah. yeah, well, I, I think they said George Sterling had some at some point. But, and he said, it's um, not for you, bud. Yeah, he, he warned uh, Ashton Smith, oh, uh, Clark Ashton Smith not to take it. Um, and I don't think it seems like it was pretty unlikely that uh, Clark Ashton Smith took any of these drugs. I think this was just coming out of his brain naturally. Yeah, he talks about wine a lot. Right, like Atlantean yeah. wine, this kind of wine, but you don't need wine to get into the wine state. <laughs> Would yeah. you? I, I, I apologize for the fact that I totally sidetracked the conversation with my. my no, my no, it's right on topic. <laughs> it's right on topic because it feels like a drug trip, right? It's it could be better explained by schizophrenia, except for the fact that the second guy goes through the same dimension, right? Or he brings, uh, yeah, the the second guy, the first guy brings the second guys, and then first and second guy bring the third guy, and then of course yeah. we all go through with all of these guys. So could I um, talk make my one point about the the kind of the structure or what I saw in yeah. the structure of the book that really struck me? I think that'll also help to kind of maybe give, almost put in a brief summary of the book. I'm not sure, but yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, as you guys mentioned, you know, we've got this frame on either side. Um, with Hestane, and he goes um, to find Angarth, who I decided his name is British enough that it would make it easier to distinguish the two voices. But yeah, you did a really. Uh, yeah. I'm I, I'm always worried when people want to do voices, but you you do a really good job with it. You should, uh, Connie. You should hear, hear his Irish. Uh, he's doing a lot of Robert E. Howard's, and he loves his. Ah. He has a really good Irish. Cool. We can do it all yeah, Irish. I, I can do a Scottish as well. That's fine. But wait, but before we talk about me, <laughs> <laughs> um, so. You know, we have what I thought was so cool about the structure for me, at least. And then I really noticed it when I went back to it, like I think for the third or fourth time for me was, which is the most recent time, was how we keep going back to Edmos. And each time we either go a little further or we go a little um, or it, it's changed somehow. Right. So our mm-hmm. first, very first time and um, Giles goes and it's um, he basically just makes it through the portal. And he's like, oh, crap, this is so uh, crazy, I gotta get out of here, and he leaves. And then the next time he comes back, and he's like, oh, I'm gonna explore, though, because I just can't get it out of my head. And so now he kind of approaches the city, he starts to hear the siren song, he sees some, some creatures, but he doesn't, I don't think, I don't think he even quite breaches the walls of the city, but he certainly doesn't get to the temple. And then he comes back, mm-hmm. and he's like, oh man, that was really, so now, now he brings the cotton balls, and he comes back, and he cotton balls, and he goes all the way to, um, but now they're not liquid soap cotton balls, so of course they're not as potent as the other guys, but or as Hastanes. But then he goes back and he sees what's happening, and he sees people throwing themselves in the flame, assumes that it's suicide, leaves, calls a friend, and then hey, you, you know, want to do a suicide with me? Come on, let's go. Let's get yeah, some coffee. Basically. Get your gun. <laughs> We're gonna go up in the mountains. It's gonna be and, great. And so, so Evanly comes with him, and then we our last our last journal entry is after that event where he knows he's going back because he just can't, the siren song has, has, has wooed him completely. And he goes back and his friend jumps in because he, he used uh, shoes and he sort of, well, you know, he's, uh, he's an artist, uh, not a wordsmith. So, you know, those guys. Right. So, but we finally see, you know, like, so I guess that last time, not a lot changes other than he's got a friend with him, but then we move on to back to Hastane and he comes in and the war's going on. Right. And then he goes, and then he goes in and we finally see what's on the other side. This, I mean, for me, it seemed like a total utopia. You know, people touch things with their brains and he 
you, everybody flies. It seems great. And somehow it's even better if you go to the next level. Um, and that was almost like Clark Ashton Smith getting super spiritual. But then when you come back out, out of the portal after the darkness, because they didn't quite escape, for some reason, only humans come back, or they were the only ones left, I guess, in this, the, the flame dimension. Um, you've got, now you've got, uh, everything's in ruins, which makes sense because the war basically was, was won, um, by the, the people that we probably think are wrong, but we understand, um, that. It, it, um, it is almost and, a temperance story, isn't it? <laughs> there's like, like these, each, there's each. these people who, uh, who want to do drugs. Uh, it's a big, popular thing in the city i was saying like it's gin it's uh yeah it's cocaine it's whatever uh whatever drug that people are really into right now i was making a joke marvel movies you know whatever drug we have to deal with <laughs> people that's are a good addicted. Drug. well people get addicted to them right you know? <laughs> i think that's the drug i take <laughs> <laughs> and then and then there's these other people like no we gotta lock this down we can't have everybody uh you know doing this because it's going to depopulate us it's bad morally right so it is bad to go up in the mountains and kill yourself and and or slash kill yourself with a friend right Right. so it's a horrible destructive uh lure that keeps uh destroying people and Uh, you don't know what's beyond this this flame right it, all you well, know is it's tra- it's as attractive. As far as they know, death death is beyond this one. <laughs> but uh, but life is not as fun as that siren call, right? Is the idea, and then oh, it's a transformation, it's an ascension. And I was thinking, Paul, about that um, that really good Silverberg book we did recently. Uh, Downward the, to the Earth. That's the one. Downward to the Earth. That's a really good book. I uh, I like that Silverberg novel, um, and it's in that the aliens have uh, a rebirth ceremony. Um, that I, I could see coming pretty early in the book. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's going to be different than what people think. And it is. Um, and that is, uh, it's something you choose to do in a way you do like suicide. Everybody dies, but, but if you choose to rebirth yourself, right? In, in uh, Logan's run, there's no option to, uh, jump into the, whatever it's called carnival or whatever if your hand isn't flashing red right you you can't go early right you have to do uh, it on your birthday i i yeah i that's a good question it's been a long time since i read the book but i don't think that's ever addressed whether or not you could uh why would anybody want to it's everything's right, right, great you're young and strong right and right. and more importantly it's rebirth uh but what, what if what if you're depressed in this world well, there's no no. We got drugs for that. We got uh, or, 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 uh swiping left. <laughs> that you, that or, movie invented swiping left, right? Or or you, or you could even uh, or right you change your whole body if you're not happy with your body. There's a new you shop. There you go. Yep. So uh, this is a this is a theme that is very um interesting. And it, it is this a fantasy or is it a science fiction? Did anybody decide? Uh, I would say it's somewhere in between but i would but you know it's almost more like a uh it's weird fiction for sure yeah it's it's more like psychedelic which i don't think is really um it's something different almost yeah it is it's more psychedelic than most of his stuff i think it's it's very spiritual yeah to me it feels like the the distinction between fantasy or science fiction here is whether or not you believe the flame is technological or magical right Mm -hmm. That's almost, I mean, and it, it is kind of a technology type, if you think 
think of it as like a teleporter that takes you into this. It's an ancient, ancient dimension port portal, right? It's an ancient yeah, doorway. I, I, it feels fantasy to me just because it's a flame and it's in a city. But I think if you like, if you made that city more like uh, Coruscant, for example, and yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, they're, know, they're describing like it as a flame, but is it a flame? Right? It's clearly not right. burning mm-hmm. them, right? Like it could, yeah, it could totally be like the, the, the thermos of the, coffee the is what makes it science fiction, right? in my view. Right, it, <laughs> and 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 the fact that it was set a little bit in the future, um, yeah. So he he talks about um, like uh, the narrator's uh, explanation for the boulders. Right, is that oh, you know, there's some sort of wormholes somewhere in space where you can sort of slip through. He mentions that <laughs> that's he's what I'm seeing. Yeah, I don't think he says wormhole, about, but absolutely, no, it, it is something that. like that. And, and we also but have a science says, fiction writer. As yes. a character, so that kind yeah, of says he, we're doing science uh, fiction. Good point. He's, he's, and it's, it's in a science fiction magazine too, right? Wonder Stories yeah. is a science fiction magazine. It, it's more like super science than it is regular science, but yeah. He, he says specifically, like he's written transdimensional stories. Right. He's written one himself, yes. right? And he goes, yeah, it's kind of like that. And so, yeah, they visit Algol, and he's got his characters have sang Freud cold bloodedly visiting alien planets, but not me. I'm a fantasy. Uh, uh, I'm a fantasist at heart, personally, because when I go through this, I'm struck with awe. Right? Yeah. Mm. I think it's from from the sort of, from that perspective, it's sort of a science fiction story because it's to do with um, different dimensions and going between them. But I got the sense that the the green flame is really more of like almost a spiritual transformation. Once they're on the other side, he's like, Oh, he says, uh, it's like, we're all one now. I, there's this feeling of singularity, mm-hmm. right? And everyone's ascending to like a higher state of, I'm like those moth people and- who are, uh, I'm like one of those moth people. I, I go in my chrysalis, which is this flame. And I come out the other side, purified or made, made unified with the others it's a it's a very also very lovecraft like he does this again and again in his the best example being ex oblivione where a guy dreams himself Mm. into death um and Mm. then non-existence which is the perfect thing for him love being non-existent oh one day i'm gonna be reborn in a body god damn it but i uh, right now i'm non-existent it's great (laughs) hmm Right, that it reminded it, me ascension. slightly of uh, the uh, Pillar of Flame in H. Rider Haggard's She, Absolutely. where Aisha, wherein she got her immortality, uh, and, but for her, it was not transformative other than giving her long life. It didn't make her wiser or she wasn't not pure a enough. Person, she was a she bad just person. Used it for power. <laughs> these these um, science fiction writers and illustrators—they're better people. <laughs> she's a bad lady. She just she she just wanted to have earthly pleasures. These guys are working on a higher dimension. <laughs> mm. <laughs> when when um the uh when they go through the green flame, when is it has to go through and he meets Angarth and uh Eb- Ebonly. Mm-hmm. Um yes. when the, the description there in my head I this thought popped into my head and I couldn't get it out. When he describes seeing them again, they're in like these cool new silken robes <laughs> of a design that if he's never seen on Earth before. And I couldn't help but thinking of the Beatles on 
the cover of the Sgt. <laughs> Pepper album in those crazy silk outfits. And the matching just, haircuts. <laughs> yeah, and just because it's such a psychedelic sort of transformation as well, it just uh, all matched, and I couldn't get that out of my head. That, that, as sense. soon as they ascended to this new plane, they went to the haircutting salon, got it matching haircuts, and then went down next door yeah. to the <laughs> silver suit oh, yeah. store and... And you know everything's grew out, free. Grew out a mustache. Yep. Right. It's 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 <laughs> everything delightful. got very groovy after that. <laughs> I mean, wh- why wouldn't you want to go visit this place? It sounds cool. Yeah. I mean, sure, it seems oh. like you're going to die, but no, no. And and then stepping through the pillars and falling, uh, it's a great description. The first time he does that, and then when he comes back the second time, he's like, "I'm going to test it a different way," and he falls a different way. Takes longer. It's like mm. he's work he's working it out in a science fiction way. Uh using the scientific method, yes. Yeah, he's testing mm-hmm. things out. Mm-hmm. You know, you need that gun in case <laughs> these aliens are dangerous, but no, they're all they're all busy going about their own pilgrimage, right? And then I and, I'll, and the same Yeah, go for it. The, the same with the earplugs where he yep. tries one method is not good enough, I can't get close enough. I got to numb my ears. I have to use a yeah. Numbing agent, yeah, and then uh, I don't. Does that you know, work? That Can you numb your ears? Guys. That, the that was that was uh, ah. like the, yeah. And yeah, yeah. they only use the regular cotton, and that but but that is what Smith did like consistently with this is he showed us that same thing but like another time. Yes. So like mm. I remember that's the structure when, I'm loving. Um, when Hastane goes in and he goes through the first portals and he describes it. First, he does the super meta thing that Smith does throughout this book, which is to say, like, words couldn't possibly describe what I'm, what it was about to happen. But here, here I'm I go. about to do it and yep. actually do it really, really well. Yep. So I'm actually just, like, pointing out how sweet I am. But like, when he <laughs> described it that third time, how he went through the portal, it was his best description of the three, I thought. And it, I understood it more, and he got more into detail, all the while, like, patting himself on the back with, there was no way that I could possibly tell you how this was, but actually, here's some really excellent prose about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know he, he's he's great mm-hmm. at it. Um, the uh, the name Ebenley's really good. All the names are really good. Hastane makes you think all sorts of weird things, right? Uh, Ebenley is got Eben in it, which is one of his favorite you know things to work into a story. You know, black wood from Africa. It's it's cool. But all of the names, um, what's the, there's three, Ebonly, uh, and Garth. So like, that's a pretty obscure name. Like that is a small town in Scotland. Like these are not, um, just regular guys, right? These are, uh, it's, it, 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 when I, when I've introduced students to Lovecraft, they says that is real name. I'm like, I, yeah. <laughs> but mm. most of the time it's like Smith, right? <laughs> Smith, nobody's gonna, you know, Clark Smith, it seems like a pretty boring name. But uh, Lovecraft's a pretty unusual name. So when you got Hastane and Ebonly and, uh, whatever the other one was, <laughs> we, we've got like a, he's, he's working the, the vocab mine into the. Well, Hastane mm. made me think of Hastur. Absolutely. I, I mean, maybe that's what, triggered me at first but i i think it's just the the landscape the tamaracks like he's describing the landscape of southern Ca- uh, mid california right yeah the, see this the, the sierras um the sierras one of the one of the books i'm reading and i think trish's too is my um 
um, the High Sierra love story by Kim Stanley Robinson, which mm. is all about his love of yeah, the Yeah, he, he's, he's a guy who loves mountains. the mm-hmm. California landscape too, right? Yeah, and and, and, and so and then so so when the when when they're exploring and finding the rock finding the rock formations, I was thinking of that book as like, damn, I got to get out. I haven't seen that documentary, but like, damn, I got to get out to the Sierras at some point. And this and this uh, story kind of reminded me, like, yes, I need to get out to the Sierras. Mm-hmm. Of course, well, I need yesterday to I was reading the um uh, uh, Zena Henderson's uh, fix up novel of the people, um, and uh, it's set in sort of Midwest or Western uh, area where there are a lot of canyons and uh, things like that. And there's actually a point where uh, someone is thinking about killing herself and uh, uh, another character tells her, don't, don't throw yourself from this bridge. The water's shallow and you'll just end up breaking your leg and, you know, getting pierced through with the limb of a tamarack tree. Right. <laughs> so, I want to read the section here. This is uh, not too deep into the story. When I finally recovered enough to view my surroundings with a measure of perception, I experienced a mental confusion equivalent to that of a man who might find himself cast without warning on the shore of some foreign planet. That's very much uh, an inhabitant of Carcosa scene, except done as a science fiction There uh, there was the same sense of utter loss and alienation which would assuredly be felt in such a case. The same vertiginous, there's a vocab word, overwhelming bewilderment, the same ghastly sense of separation from all of the familiar environmental details that give color and form and definition to our lives and even determine our very personalities. So this is actually uh, very reflective. Like, if you guys watch that documentary, um, he's really, like, you know, what they say about Lovecraft being a shut-in, like, this guy really didn't leave his small town that he was born in. His dad traveled the whole world and had a lot of stories. Um, the only time Clark Ashton Smith left town was to visit George Sterling in San Francisco. And then he immediately goes back and he goes back to the library. And that's where, you know, he reads the Arabian nights and then invents whole stories set on other planets, all over the world. And just, he lives in his head. Is so it's 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 really cool. So he's actually telling us about himself when he says this landscape, right? Because um, this, like, he didn't even drive a car; he, he walked everywhere and walked to town, walked to the library. I was standing in the midst of a landscape which bore no degree or manner of resemblance to Crater Ridge. It's a real place. A long, gradual slope covered with violet gla- grass and studded at intervals with stones of monolithic size and shape. Ran, un- ran un- undulantly away beneath me to a broad plain with a sinuous open meadows and high stately forests of an unknown vegetation whose predominant hues were purple and yellow. The plain seemed to end in a wall of impenetrable gro- golden brownish mist that rose with, a- with phantom pinnacles to z- dissolve on a sky of luminescent amber in which there was no sun. In the foreground of this amazing scene, not more than two or three miles away, there loomed a city whose massive towers and mountainous ramparts of red stone were such as the Anakim, A-N-A-K-I-M, of undiscovered worlds might build. And that's a capital A. Wall, wall on beetling wall and spire on giant spire, it soared to confront the heavens, maintaining everywhere the severe and solemn lines of a rectilinear architecture. 
It seemed to overwhelm and crush down the beholder with its stern and crag-like eminence. Right, this is p- the p- the part of the story where he's he stepped through the looking glass into the fantasy world after taking a hike, and that's what he sees is you know this alien city with you know a yellow mist. Uh, it, it it does uh, turn into like a cartoon almost or uh, animated. Like it, this would best be done animated because if they did this as CGI, I would like be yeah they got it wrong somehow. It would be too much like Coruscant, you know, you know little little uh, zippers and things flying around. It feels like it's 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 much more illustrated than it is. Uh, I don't know. I. Uh, Live action. <laughs> it's illustrated by his words. What is Anakim? I I I got it. For, I got it from Wikipedia. Anak Anakim are mentioned in the Bible as a possible race of giant humanoids uh. descended from Anak. According to the Old Testament, the Anakim lived in the southern part of the land of Canaan near Hebron. States Genesis states that they inhabit the region later known as Edom and Moab in the days of Abraham. The may the name may come from a Hebrew root word meaning necklace or neck chain. Yeah, so they're giants. So, they're bit. They're, they're bit. Um. They're basically. He's using gargantuan here. <laughs> gargantuan city. Right. He's using a synonym, but only he knew it. Anakim. Yeah, I never. They're, they're, I never walked around my life thinking. Uh, oh yeah, Anakim. That's yeah, a normal word. Oh, yeah. those, those, those look. Those look like Anakim. I mean, I. I mean, if I. I mean, the word I probably. I've got a Darth Vader. Yeah, of course you did. I, I did too. Because yeah. he's Anakin. Right. No, well, yeah. and that's where they, that's where they steal all these names from, bud. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was like, George Lucas read some Clark Ashton Smith, didn't he? No, nope, he no, he just read the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> well, the um the inhabitants of the city, because there's all these different aliens going to the flame, yeah. but the actual uh, people or the people of the city who live there are like these gigantic stone sort of people. Um, mm-hmm. if you remember, mm-hmm. I thought it was curious. The description of them says that they do not have ears, which was really, yeah, they don't hear the sound. Yeah. So, so this is a flame, whatever it is. So this is, it's this there, is a Las Vegas. Not... Everybody comes to Las Vegas, but the local <laughs> residents don't gamble. Don't, right? they're, 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 yeah, they, don't gamble. they don't okay. see it. They work in the <laughs> casino. They work the flame, flame center, center stage. They sell popsicles and silver suits to uh, and haircuts to the the, the, the tourist trade. But it, it, what it, what it really implies, because of all the alien creatures visiting, besides the local residents, is that there's many roads to this city, right? And that I was thinking that the the uh, Lepidoptera people and the other alien creatures are all. Passing through their corridors on whatever other Earths oh, well, there are, uh, well, or uh, whatever uh, other planets they're coming from. I, I mean, this, this. I mean, I mean, this is like a plane of portals. I mean, it's kind of yes. it's kind of said that there are other planes around there, which made me think of the the um, Glenn Cook Black Company series, where we find out there's a plane of portals of all different worlds that the Black Company winds up stumbling into at one point. Yeah, or it's or, it, it's or, Las Vegas for for uh, suicides, right? Or what? Or, or transcendence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People with uh... and and then this uh, when the war comes, this the sinning has got to be stopped, right? The outside, what? what I mean, that, that's why it's so interesting and, and demands a sequel. Is we go? 
how does this all work? We gotta know, right? It's not like it's 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 all explained. It's not explained. Mm. I don't no, really want I, an explanation. I mean, it's perfectly clear that uh, the people making war on the city are upset about their citizens getting drawn into this death cult, suicide cult. I mean, that's why. But are they, they from that know? dimension? Mm, they are close enough, at least, to that dimension that their own people keep getting drawn into the death trap. Yeah, but that doesn't seem to be the case for for humans in California. We got three three Americans go through. <laughs> That's it, right? Well, it's just a cosmic if accident. You, <laughs> humans center themselves the, in their stories, but that's that's not really the point of what's going no, on. No, it's not. Just observe. Yeah, yeah, in, in some ways, I mean the human I mean we're in, in some ways, I think you're right, Trish, we're kind of a sideline to this city being destroyed and this world being destroyed. We're kind of like spectators and not really important to the plot of the end of this uh, city and civilization. Yeah, we're the gun never cool. gets used. You never need to the use gun. The gun never gets used. Yeah. Right. Let's hear Tommy. Tommy what, what were you going to say? Oh, well, they, they just, if you look at the, the buildings, and of course, like part of why you don't use the gun is like, what are you going to hurt with the, with the shot? <laughs> these things are so colossal and titanic. Yeah. The, the, both the keepers of the city are, are, you know, the giant, but the, the like siege weaponry is described as like a tower with legs. Yeah. And like, so the towers are getting closer and they have like a creepy eye, kind of like our good friend Sauron. Cool. I've, re- I've now referenced Bill Tolkien in Star Wars in this <laughs> podcast. So that just makes me happy. Um, but like those are the, like, I feel like they could be from the same planet because they're, it's, they almost all seem to be like living buildings. They're so, you know, colossally mm. large that they could almost be buildings. But I could also see them being, yeah, like since people are coming from all over the place, you could totally see them being like, and one of those countries sends an army to say like, we've got to get rid of this because all of our people are going to whatever planet or mm-hmm. dimension this is going through the portals on their own planets and then eventually running into the but I do like the reference to it being a suicide cult because it's totally, I can totally see how from the outside looking Well, in, if you don't go through, yeah. right, you don't know. Right. Even our, you know, all of our people, I actually, I don't know, maybe I think I've read this before, like before I read it for, for the, 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 the recording, but mm-hmm. I kind of, I was like, why are they so certain that, that it, there's something bad through the flame? And, you know, I, I mean, and again, maybe I just remember what was coming, but it's sort of interesting that he really tries to push this idea like, well, obviously you're going to die. It's flame, you know? And he uses the term immolated at one point, but like yeah. things kind of sort of disappear. So it's like, it's not like, I don't feel like there was smoke or, you know, any other indication. It was just like they were instantly consumed, which kind of made you wonder, you know, is it just that hot? You know, if you really believe it's a, a burning flame. Yeah. Let me read another section here. This is really, uh, it's just, it's great, right? The, f- the flame rose to its apex. And even for me, the mesmeric, this is near the end, mesmeric lure was well nigh irresistible. Many of our companions su- succumbed to the, to the w- desire, right? And then first to immolate himself, uh, and then, th- and the first to immolate himself was a giant lepter- lepidopterous being. Four others of diverse evolutional types followed in an appallingly swift succession. Me too, I'm going in! <laughs> in my own partial subjection to the music. I'm coming! No, it looks so good! 
Uh, my yeah. own. Well, that's why I kept. That's why I kept thinking moths to a plane. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they and they're smart moths, right? So they're like, Good, I know I should do it, but come on. Um, my own effort. They're also to re- compassionate moths. They're they're oh yeah, they're nice. They're they nice. see this guy who can't get to their fellow the plane, travelers, so they very kindly. <laughs> Take them for a ride. Yep. You know, it's rather sweet. <laughs> no, they're, no, they're, they're, they're kindly fellow travelers on a, on mm-hmm. a journey. My own effort to resist the deadly enslavement, I had almost, in my own effort, in my own partial subjection to the music, my own effort to resist the deadly enslavement, I had almost forgotten the very presence of Evanly. It was too late for me to even think of stopping him when he ran forward in a series of leaps that were both solemn and frenzied. <laughs> Like the beginning of some a sacerdotal dance. There's another Clark Ashton Smith, right? It's like uh, that vocab word means uh, sacrificial uh, function of a religion. So a yeah. sacerdotal. That goes back to the Bible again. Yep, yep. He just loves his vocab. Uh, sacerdotal dance and hurled himself headlong into the flame. The fire enveloped him. It flared up for an instant with a more dazzling greenness. Oh. And then was, uh, and that was all. Slowly, as if from being, uh, from the benumbed brain centers, a horror crept upon my conscious mind and helped to annul the perilous mesmerism. I turned while many others were following Evan Lee's example and fled from the shrine and from the city. But somehow the horror diminished as I went and the, and more and more I found myself envying my companion's fate and wondering as to the sensations he had felt in that moment of fiery dissolution. So this is actually uh, interesting because not everybody who goes to Vegas stays in Vegas. On the way out, right, uh, on the way into the city, they see more people going in than coming out, but there are some coming out, right? It's almost like they go and they say, you know what, I'm thinking I'm going, this is very attractive. But what if what if it isn't what if it isn't that great? What what if I'm just gone? I mean, it's 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 the uh, since similar phenomena as you see a whole bunch of people enjoying something like uh, wine or whatever it is, and uh, you're like, mm, yeah, it's not for me. They look like they're having fun, but most people would want to have some of that wine or ice cream or whatever it is, right? There's always some people who don't go for it. And yet, maybe maybe I would have been happier if I'd had some of that wine or some of that ice cream or whatever it is. So, it, it, FOMO. He's, yeah, uh, it is obviously a FOMO, but there's some sort of... Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a really hilarious um, short story uh, by C.C. McCapp. Um, it's a... <laughs> It's about um, uh, a computer slips a cog. This is a time when computers uh, are mechanical. A computer slips a cog and um, s- sends too much money to the advertising department uh, of a coffin company, like by a mega magnitude. And suddenly mm-hmm. everybody's um, buying coffins for their homes. Like, uh, and they put like a two park, uh, two car, uh, coffin garage, you know, on their homes and they put them under the Christmas tree. And, and, uh, at the end of the story, um, I, uh, lone prospector walks out of the desert, um, you know, been away from society for, uh, two years while this has been happening. 
and he finds everybody's dead because they all use their coffins. And then he turns to uh, the jackass uh, who he's with and he says, Jenny, looks like it's up to you and me to restart society. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's, it's like, um, this fashion is very popular. I'm going to get a face tattoo. <laughs> like, yeah, well, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll get used to it. Just like people who got, you know, smallpox and have, uh, you know, stars and hearts on their face to cover up the scars. Okay. But, um, after a while, <laughs> you, you at least get to reproduce that way. If you're dead, y'all throwing yourself into a flame. Uh, or you, another way of looking at it is it's emigration, people leaving the country, right? And they, they want to stop that. Yeah. Um, hmm. It's a, like, do we know for sure that, um, cause maybe I missed this part in the story that, uh, the reason, uh, actually, okay. So let me get this straight. My understanding of the story is, we don't know the reason that this other city is attacking the city with the singing flame, right? Uh, I'm presuming it's because it's a moral uh, upset. Yeah. and I think it's even maybe mentioned like that they were like, go- going against him because of that. We're getting all this because, through brains, right? Because of the flame. Yeah, yeah direct telepathy. All their people are, are killing themselves. Right. I thought that was yeah, yeah. yeah, I get that. I think that's explicitly said that that's what they think. That, yeah, but we're getting that through telepathy, people. not through words, right? From these aliens, whatever they, 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 well, the, the incoming army certainly destroys the foundation of the flame because they get, um, the, uh, humans get spat out. But it's not like Reno. It, we don't think it's like Reno is trying to steal, uh, Las Vegas's business, right? They're yeah, not. It's actually. Mm-hmm. It's in the text. Um, after they go through the flame, uh, the persons who came with you are trying to tell me something. He went on. You and they, it seems, are the last pilgrims who will enter Edemos and attain the inner dimension. War is being made on the flame and its guardians by the rulers of the outer lands because so many of their people have obeyed the lure of the singing fountain and vanished into the higher sphere. Aha. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, uh, okay, it, so it doesn't. Do, it is. An, do it, it could be an emigration thing, right? They don't. They don't think of it like as a suicide. Um, we think mm-hmm. of it that way, certainly. Um, and, and, and the story kind of leans that way. To oh yeah, it's not. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it is like we're thinking moth to a flame. It's right in the text, right? Uh, yeah. But um, you don't know. May <laughs> one moth saying to the other moth. Just because Henry went through doesn't mean we're going to die. <laughs> you don't know. Maybe it's really good in there. <laughs> I get to ascend. You know, I used to be a caterpillar. I transformed. When I go through that, I'll be, like, better. You know? You don't know. It's real attractive. I'm going, bye! Yeah. <laughs> Flies into the flame. <laughs> yeah, and he goes on to say, There are many legends in the Outer Lands concerning the flame and the fate of those who succumb to its attraction. But the truth is not known or is guessed by only a few. Many believe, as I did, that the end is destruction. And by some who suspect its existence, the inner dimension is hated as a thing that lures idle dreamers away from worldly reality. It is regarded as a lethal and pernicious chimera, as a mere poetic dream or a sort of opium paradise. Do you think the city built it it or it was built up around it? It was the city like became a mecca for this 
or was it a technology that they invented and then everybody's suicide boothing because this is so great? Like it, 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 the the buildup of the city, right? This gargantuan city and all the pathways leading to it, including from California. It, it seems like that would be the case, especially because when um, Angarth initially goes to the city, he says that the temple is sort of like uh, it's a building that is like larger or more impressive than other buildings mm-hmm. around it, right? And he sort of just is drawn there almost magnetically. So, so maybe it's like yeah, a beautiful the, waterfall for, for Paul, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He said, I have to take a picture of it. And then we're holding him back and breaking his <laughs> tripod and smashing his camera. No, Paul, don't do it. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's too it's, dangerous. For me, it was almost like, um, this, uh, yeah, like it's it's almost like um we can't have too many people being happy here. We can't have too many people um being drawn into the fa- into their own fantastical imagination or into a higher state of consciousness. We need them to be in this reality, right? Yeah, it's Who like VR. Kind of it's a, a it's a VR fountain. Doing something like that. Um, you don't want to get sucked into it, that and just live in your basement uh yeah, doing VR well, all day. Yeah. We don't want too many people to drop out of society like this. It, it seems like I keep on coming back to like hippies as being a sort of analogy yeah. or as being comparable to this because there's this, there's this sort of spiritual highest state of consciousness aspect. But also now there's like people who jump into the flame are kind of dropping out of society and are no tune, longer tune, there. Tune in, drop out. Tune yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and then it, the outer lords have got to put a spiritual. stop to this. Hmm. It's it's like it's like the what we had it recently, and I'm a part of it, sort of. I guess the Great Resignation, right? Like, oh so yeah, many people are like, you know what? The the world just kind of got crappy in the pandemic here, and I realized that there's more to life than now. I have the time, job. even though I can do it. From I home, can think like, about this. I'm not just nine to fiving right now. I can I can take a I can decide I don't want to do this anymore. And so that's mm. the that's the religion versus like being a cog in the cog in the machine or whatever, mm-hmm. and that. They, Absolutely. You know, the only difference is, I mean, ostensibly people other than our, our, our viewpoint characters know what they're going into and they're not just simply called by the siren song, you know, and unable and without cotton in their ears or being, you know, lashed to the mast of the ship like Odysseus was or whatever it was. So I just thought that it, it totally was, was that it's very, it was very, um, it felt timeless that concept of like people are mad mm. you don't want to do what they want you to do mm-hmm. and they're so willing to prevent you from doing it that they will actually you know war on a peaceful nation and and you know slaughter this beautiful and destroy this beautiful city mm-hmm. mm. to stop people from doing it yeah can can and, they de- can they destroy the, if 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 they can destroy it like it's a uh, laser beam going up to s- the sky or something, right? Then it's a technology. If it's a fountain, like a uh, geyser, and it's a natural phenomenon coming out of the earth, I mean, they could probably wreck the uh, the local output, put, but wouldn't it come out somewhere else, right? If it's a geological force, which we get a lot of geology in this, the scoriac stuff at the beginning, right? He's talking about this is a volcanic area, even though everybody says it isn't. It's, I'm sure it is. 
Well, we got to read this sequel. We might find out. That's what I'm saying is this is why people wanted this sequel and were demanding. Like, no, this is not a period where sequels were a major thing. People just wanted another story, right? Mm. And when when you read Conan, you don't say, oh, that's a sequel, right? Yeah. They're just next stories. There's another story. Oh, this one stars Conan too. Cool. I like him. Those those were the days, right? You just – didn't need a sequel. Jump onto a new idea. Yeah, no, you don't. Uh, um, well, how many times does Conan revisit the same place? Oh, like never, never. No, that, that, that's kind of the point. He doesn't recapitulate himself. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, this is about as as far as he goes. That that uh, tri- was it. Cora Trish, who who bought that Poseidonus? It was you, Trish, right? Me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a good find, by the way. Yeah, good yeah. price too. Um, so that I was going through your, uh, ISFDB for that particular volume and I did find a nice, uh, Clark Ashton Smith thing in a process. But, um, those Poseidonist stories, like what links them together, there's no sequels in there, right? They're, they're, they're just stories set in the same general place. And, and, you well, know, I haven't you, read it yet, but that's what it looks like. Yeah. They're, po- they're poems and, uh, you know, he likes Atlantis a lot. He likes that, that thing. And so he's, you know, they're all, they're all different. Um, they're set in an ancient period of time. He's got like two or three other series like that that are, you know, just stories, uh, like the Averone stuff, right? It's just set in a fantasy France, sort of, that's really California. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, they're, they're not sequels. So this is like, I think as close as he came to writing a, a series. Because it, I, I think this one stands fine on its own, but once you start like, Asking a question, why is this happening? Which, by the way, you know, that's what the letters pages are for. And fans getting together for, you know, they they read the latest Wonder Stories and they're sending letters to each other and saying, oh my God, is this really possible? What do you think about that? I think we should find out. We should ask for a next. And they do. They write in and they ask for a sequel, which is not mm-hmm. usually the case at the time. Mm-hmm. They just want more by the same author. It'll be curious to see whether he expounds on on the uh, like nature of this world and the purpose of the flame, or what else is going on, or whether it's uh, or whether it goes in a different direction. Mm-hmm. I, I am kind of curious, uh, even though I'm not a, a sequel series guy. If Tommy, if you want to record it, I'll listen to it. <laughs> I'll process it up. In, in, in either case. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all for like, look, it's been a lot of fun, and I, you know, I'm trying to learn how to do it. You know, how no, you did. This one's pretty good. Rest, I would say, like, there, uh, as uh, it's not quite hundred percent perfect. Like, there's a couple of uh, things I could edit out just to make it a little bit better as a as a commercial audiobook or you know professional grade or whatever. But it's it, your setup. Whatever setup you got there is uh, not not the one you're talking to us with right now. But whatever you use yeah. on this particular one, keep using that. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I mean, I would try to use that setup, but if we wouldn't, I don't have all that. No, I, it's okay. It's there, it's but, only the it podcast. The, though, right? Yeah, I, 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 um, yeah, I mean, the problem, I think my internet might be hit or miss, but I, mm-hmm. uh, I definitely upgraded from the, you know, the first things that I sent, which I think the first thing you put was also Clark Ashton Smith, the Black Abbott of yeah um that was literally recorded on my phone on a farm in ecuador like it was it was bad you know i mean (laughs) you did a nice job cleaning it up Uh, but it's still pretty yeah it's still pretty pretty raw right versus Mm -hmm. this 
you know, I'm, I've got the setup now where I feel like it's, you know, it, it, it at least there's a little like checklist for like audible and like I hit all the, those checklists. So I'm, I'm glad to do that, but it's just so fun to, to basically it, it gives me an excuse to read a story that I've always wanted to read. And mm-hmm. I'm now also like getting to be, a, and you get to read it at a level character. that you don't get to read it at, uh, if you're just casually, you know, going yeah, through a book. It's, it's fun. And I get to share that. So I, yeah, I'm, that's you know, great. I'm glad that to be able to do it. Yeah. I, th- I thought you did a really good job, by the way. I mm-hmm. liked it. And I wanted mm-hmm. to ask about your, the accent you did for Angar. Yeah. Because I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. It was pretty spot on. Did you like, um, base that off of? He's a like, mid Atlantic guy. It sounds like to me. He's like, uh, he's so, a highfalutin guy. Uh, I, um, I mean, I've been doing accents like all my life. Like, I can start with Irish and go to Scottish and then go to British and then I can be Australian <laughs> or whatever. You know, like I can do that. And I, I've been to theater and stuff and just like, you know, Saturday Night Live, they did voices. I wanted to do voices or stuff like that for a mm-hmm. long time. Um, I would say that British accent, which has kind of become my like go to British accent is somewhere based largely on Alec Guinness and 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 uh, Ewan McGregor's copying mm. Alec Guinness as Obi Wan Kenobi. Mm. It's not quite the same. I think I did try to make it a, put a little more like Yorkshire in there, um, but it's that's sort of just like my like when I play British characters and plays and shows and stuff. That's sort of kind of my go to. And I know that's like its deepest roots are like all the British characters from Star Wars because um, <laughs> I'm just a, a huge Star Wars nerd. Yeah. Um, I have a Star Wars tattoo, and I, my other tattoo is the inscription of the One Ring. Um, but uh, uh-huh. well, 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 I expect anyway, to see a City of Singing Flame tattoo pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, I, I am not kidding about like how impressed I I am each time I go back to to Smith. Mm-hmm. Like you guys said earlier, how he's sort of you know pretty famous, but like when I tell people like. Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard. I have to explain Clark Ashton Smith by, like, well, he was a contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft. Most people have heard of him, not everybody. Or, mm. and then, like, well, like, he and, and Lovecraft and, and Robert E. Howard were big. And people like, Robert E. Howard, he's that. And, like, Conan. They're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, so it, it depends, you know, on, on who the people you're talking about are, right? Like, this is a group of, 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 of book nerds, right? I, I use that uh, term positively. Um, and yeah. so amongst like the literary folk, like, yeah, he is really well known. I think like, but he's not quite on that level. I think like H.P. Lovecraft is kind of another level because the whole, it's, my, my yeah, no, everywhere. he's media, right? Yeah. Everybody knows him because uh, like it's, he's in the Marvel universe, right? Like L- Lovecraft's books uh, are in, uh, you know, the Marvel universe. It's silly. Uh, and so it's hard to compare and Conan, you know, the movies and you know, many reboots in the comics and all that stuff. Clark Ashton Smith comics. I have one. <laughs> I got it from the guy who made it, who didn't make a many copies, right? How many uh, Clark Ashton Smith movies are there? Two. Uh, and then there's a documentary. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Right. Almost but nothing. I, right? he might be, I didn't know there was even, but he two. might be the best. There's a TV sh- adaptation and, uh, yeah, no, he's, he's, difficult he's different he's high level right when i read it with students i'm reading with young students we spend a lot of time on each sentence just so i can understand it <laughs> and then we get you know great 
incredible vocab that allows me to expand mine and, and, you know, the kids get it too. But the imagery, the colors, the, the materials that he uses, Chalcedony, right? Only, only guy who uses Chalcedony as much as, uh, Smith is, is Lovecraft. That's why they were so, such good buddies, right? They, they love their art. They're art men. They love art. Even if they're not professional artists, they just love art. And they really, they dig it. I, I wanted I know to what rectilinear architecture. Is. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was the nod to Lovecraft right there. Um, oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, also, um, what was the other one? The one he always uses about like colossal. No, it's not colossal. It's um, uh, Cyclopean. 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 Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. You need to do. You need, you need to do another uh, Robert E. Howard. Uh, vocab, but for Lovecraft at some point. I know it's a monumental task, but a little easier, I think. Because more, more of his <laughs> stuff is e-text. Yeah, yeah. It'll probably wouldn't be too difficult because I can plug it all into the same yeah. code. Yeah, absolutely. And get, this, and get the output. So, yeah. Um, um, I want to read this because this is kind of related. And this is why I do the podcast, right? I, I want to read stories. How do I do that? I got to... Get make I gotta make a, an appointment to do that. If it's just me, I won't do it because I'd rather play a computer game or <laughs> something, right? So uh, we had a little discussion about AI on Twitter. Uh, Jay Jonathan uh, Manfred Weichel says, um, "In the future, AI will collect information on you to build your psychological profile and learn your likes and dislikes. Then it will write stories tailored to your individual taste, designed so that you will find them addictive, and everyone." We'll have an AI, AI do the same for them. Uh, and William Jeffrey Rankin says, Alas, I'm sure you're right, and I'm being too optimistic. It is up to individuals then to take a principled stand against stuff like this. Right, so this is us denying the, the attraction of the flame. we got to stand against this stuff. And then Jesse says, If it gets that far, it's just another drug problem like heroin, gin, Marvel movies. And Jonathan <laughs> says, In the future, instead of everybody watching the same Marvel movie, you will log into your Marvel website. And get your own very, uh, your very own ongoing Marvel story tailored to you individually. You will be able to, uh, you will be unable to discuss Marvel movies with others because everybody's Marvel will be unique. Jesse says, no, you will be able to discuss them with your AI friends whom you subscribe to as long as you pay Amazon, Disney, <laughs> Google, Megacorps. And, and then Jonathan says, I am so happy that my AI girlfriend likes the same AI movies I do. Hashtag gratitude. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we are now, people. We can't just enjoy Clark Ashton Smith stuff. We need AI Clark Ashton Smith tailored in individually to us. Then I will go on a podcast of, uh, composed entirely of my AI friends who will all agree with me that I'm right about everything. Uh, and then everybody mm-hmm. will be happy Perfect. and well, nobody will know about it because the podcast feed will include just me as the sub- only subscriber and all my AI friends who I have to pay Google for. But it will be perfectly customized <laughs> to your taste. So. And I will never learn anything, right? That, that's a mm. great thing about reading Clark Ashton it's Smith. You just, learn stuff. You learn the vocab. It's incredible. Yeah. That whole story feels disturbingly realistic. It does, and right? Perfect. And we're right there. Well, the, the problem is that um, people don't really know what they want, but yes. AI only knows what, what people think they want, things, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, maybe they'll get, maybe they'll get smarter and then it'll give us Clark. It'll say, you know what? Just read Clark Ashton Smith. Doesn't even bother generating new AI. It just sends you a link and, and you think, Oh, I'm getting customized stuff just made just for, no, it's just Clark Ashton Smith. 
Yeah. People just opt out of it. I mean, I don't uh, want this crap the, anymore. the way I think about it is, um, everybody's an AI, right? They, they're all, all you people are AIs. Um, and you're recommending stuff to me. And most of the time I'm saying, I don't know about that. It seems like too new of a book or whatever. Uh, or this movie, oh, you know. It's always too new of a book for you, Jesse. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, I, I saw a list of the best science fiction, uh, best science fiction books yesterday. I'm like, I think this was AI generated because, you know, there's one, only one, there's 23 books on the list. Uh, all of them are like famous, right? And there's like one book like from 2016. And like what Jules Verne is, it's not really a science. The Jules Verne was not really science fiction. One of them is actually a, uh, a collection and all the rest are novels. Like it, whoever generated, like what I think happened was an, somebody says, give me a list. I have to write a story for some listicle website that's going to pay me a dollar or whatever. And, mm. and it just went online. The AI went online and looked at all, all the people's lists of the best science fiction no- uh, books and then just, you know, integrated them, got rid of duplicates because none of them were super controversial. You know, Margaret was this, but only one, you know, one Isaac Asimov, no Arthur C. Clarke, because I guess he doesn't write books or something. I don't know, but it was one of everybody else. And then like Blake Crouch's 2016 book. I mean, maybe that's one of the best books of all time, but I haven't heard of that one. All the rest of them I heard of. Mm. Uh, yeah, the Martian was on the list. I'm like, best science fiction book. Okay, maybe on a long, long, long list. It's a good book. Mm. Best. But it's it, likely that it was AI generated. Yeah. Oh, well, it's possible. And you know, was, if you if uh, you use that as your massive introduction, your only introduction to science fiction, I'm, you say I'm going to start reading these books. You do pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. So I I I I will uh, bring it around, sort of full circle. Does anyone know the author? I'm sure you do M. John Harrison. I think his yeah. name is. Yes, I, yep. I've never you know, met him. Met him but familiar. Yeah. Anyone? Anyone read the book he put out recently called "The Sunken Land Rises Again"? Mm-mm. I think it's no, called. I, I, I've read Viraconium, but I haven't read that one. Okay, I, I really liked Viraconium. Um, so, which this is how I'm tying it back to Clark Ashton Smith because mm-hmm. I think Viraconium sort of. Um, Shares some uh, DNA with yeah DNA with Clark actually oh oh absolutely for sure I can see that for um, sure yeah yeah um, and but anyway I just read this book recently because I saw that it got a few views uh, not not views um, awards and stuff people were saying it won a few different things and it's definitely like it's weird fiction but it's 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 pretty damn weird uh, in um, in terms of yeah this is a one. And the way it was described to me that got me interested was it's about an assistant sort of to a mad scientist who's trying to raise uh, a, like either a sunken land like Atlantis mm-hmm. or a race of fish people. But the assistant is just so apathetic. He just doesn't really care or seem to notice what's going on. Um, and I read it and that really, and, uh, that's a rough estimation mm, of what the story is. It's eight is. hours, so it's not super long. Oh uh, yeah, um, yeah, and like the, the hard. I mean, I read it and I did enjoy it. I don't know whether I would recommend it though, because it was super dense and very like prosy, mm. um, and pretty pretty light on any kind of plot. 
Um, but I was just curious. What, I was curious whether anyone heard of this. I, I I've not read. The, I don't think I've read any M. John Harrison. But he is he is one of those guys who wouldn't appear on a uh, best science fiction book list because none of his stuff is that famous. But he is on the long list of of of. I want to say he's from the seventies, right? He's still alive and working, but he, he he's been around for for a fair while, um, and he's been writing the whole time. But um, I think like because I think Vericonium was his earliest sort of stuff, mm-hmm. and then he did some science fiction, like right, one, yeah, the light novels and stuff. Exactly, yeah. and I I dipped my toe into those a little bit, but I don't remember them much now. And then this is um, this one they did was uh, felt kind of um it's going for an unsettling sort of atmosphere right but mm-hmm. also um it feels very very modern as well anyway i was curious whether anyone uh, heard of this one but nope he, he does have yeah. a few uh books on audible not a ton uh it says nine results and one of them's a short story and Obviously, the sunken land, um, Nova Swing. That's another one that looks a little older. Mm. It's part of this, a part of a series, book series that people like. Yep, but, that's the light, the uh, the light series. Yeah, and the Vericonium. I think there's two, or there's one book here. Nine, it's twenty hours. There's there's quite a few. I think there's at least. Um, yeah, I've there's read. another one called In Vericonium, but it's not audio audiobook. No. Oh, and as far as audiobooks, yeah, there's probably not too many, but um, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the original collection is on is on audio. It's uh, how long this thing is? Um, this is the thing collection? is nineteen hours. Yeah, it's a, it's a collection of stories, really. Ah, it's not a whole novel. Yeah. Um, and it's nineteen hours long. Mm-hmm. So, oops. With but done by, 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 by Simon Vance, but ouch. Yeah. No, uh, th- no, no, I'd rather read a, the individual short story. That, Speaking uh, of individual short stories, mm-hmm. the author, the author and story I kept thinking of that I mentioned before I was going to bring up is Jack Vance's Green Magic. When I was reading this story, which is mm. about, which is about, a, it's about a guy who finds out his, his uncle is a wizard and has access to this other realm. And so, so this guy goes through his whole life trying to get to this route get to this realm and get magic and it's a very bitter and very tragic sort of story and he winds up getting the magic he wants from this other world but it turns out to not to be everything all he ever wanted to be but the whole idea of nested in recursive worlds and trying to search for something beyond this world and not quite getting what you want kind of resonated as i was reading Mm -hmm. this story Mm -hmm. Hmm. interesting i've heard of that one before but i've never gone around to read it but yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's really poignant and good. Yeah. Well, okay. Because okay. you know what? Also, um, I'm I'm trying to think. Like Jack Vance was definitely after Clark Ashton Smith, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And Jack Vance's style, especially his stuff to do with like um, dying Dying-er. Earth sort yeah. of wizards and stuff like that, is is very Clark yeah. Ashton yeah. Smith. Yeah, that's very. the Zothique series, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You you can draw you can draw a line from Zothic right to right to Jack Vance's Dying Earth, and draw draw that from to uh, Gene Wolfe's uh, New Son. So yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, right. there, to go back to uh, Hope Hodgson and Nightlands, man. So yes, yeah, so there's there's a definite continuity there. Green Magic has nothing to do with the with uh, the Dying Earth. It's a standalone story of its own. It sounds pretty interesting though. Um, like I have heard that, but I've never been 
I've never seen a paperback. I have tons of Jack Vance paperbacks. It it might be one of those recent collections that they did of his work. I'm not sure. I don't Um, see an audiobook for it, so. No, no, I don't think any of those collections have ever gotten an audio book. And it is, I think, I think it's in, uh, no, I Green Magic. Copyright. Green, yeah, it is, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost, yeah. almost nothing of his long stuff is out of copyright. Oh, oh, yeah. So, so, yeah. So it's in the collection Wild Time Green Magic, which came out from Subterranean Press in 2015. Oh, cool. Okay. So it, there's an ebook. The, the hardcover. Which I wish I had is way, way long out of print because it was subterranean press and they made it them. So you can get mm. that expensively. I love those covers though that they did. Yeah, the they, they do a very premium paper. Yeah, it, yeah. I wish I had a copy of Wild Time Green Magic. Um, but, yeah. So Le- Logan's Run. I'm, Logan's Run. I'm Next excited week. about that. Mm-hmm. I'm but, very excited about Shakespeare's Planet because I've visited that since I was little. Invitation to the game. Don't think I ever read it, but VR. Charwoman. I, I read that one. Invitation to the game when it came out, and uh, I'd be interested if you'd add me to that discussion, that. please. Yeah. Putting you on, Trish. All right. Uh, and also, I'm always up for Lord Dunsany. So the that's, term that's a novel, but I can add you absolutely. Uh, Scratch one by Michael Crichton, John Lang. Black House. This is a big, big, chunky book. Progeny. Oh, did I send you, uh, Tommy, the latest last two? Was was Progeny one of them? <laughs> I can't remember. I don't um Philip K. Dix, I sent yeah, you a whole bunch I, of stuff, and I'm behind on stuff to put yeah. up, too. But we'll, we'll, get. I, I, well, anything that you've sent me, I'm pretty sure I have saved. In a, okay, good. Like, I just download it and save it on my iPad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do not see progeny on here. May, so I, I I've got an audio for it, clearly. I just don't remember. I know that there was two recent Philip K. Dick's uh, public domain ones that I've, I've... And there's... I think there's more I can I can probably scratch. I, I've sort of not been focused on Philip K. Dick for years. So getting back to him every once in a while, I'm checking to see, oh yeah, this one is, that one is. So I think it's like 53 stories or something now. Maybe it's like 57. Um we're, we're getting a few more. Uh, so after it's always exciting. To, oh yeah, his stuff is especially his so shorts. Say, so, well, it's, it's always exciting to read like these incredible authors, right? Like I've read like Smith twice, Robert E. Howard once, Le Guin once, Arthur C. Clarke, Philip K. Dick, you know, now Elmore Leonard. I think is the last one I sent you. Yeah. But like, and to think like this is wait a minute. Like I think you're, all the ones you're sending me like. Basically, never been recorded. No, so nobody's recorded. Like, nobody, nobody knows the their public domain yet. <laughs> right, like this is the only recording in the entire world. Of All this, the weight like, of the world is on your shoulders, sir. Well, I mean, it's like again, like I, I really need to improve the quality of my, you know, stuff. But I think, you know, I think I am, um, or I'm glad that I that I have, you know, since I got up. It was fun to just experiment when I was mm-hmm. on the farm, but like, it's really it's it's exciting in a way, right? Um, yeah, you know, and we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, what, what more comes of it. But for the meantime, it's just great to get to read. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, well, I will, of course I want to read a short story by like one yeah. of these dudes. And then this gives me an opportunity or gals, this gives me an opportunity to, to like read it really, you know, a little more closely. Um, and, you know, and then have people appreciate it. it. It's nice to, it's nice to be appreciated. You know, it's nice to know that somebody's, you know, you're not, Writing it down in a beautiful poem and then burning it and throwing it in the in the ashes. 
Yeah, it's there for somebody, if, if only for this group, right? So that's really cool, and uh, well, yeah, no, I'm it, glad we're it, it. But y'all, we always forget it's not just for the moment either, right? It's it's for the ages. As long as we've got a little bit of distribution, somebody can grab it and put it on their hard drive and then share it with somebody 30 years from now. And that's what people do. People collect stuff, throw it on a hard drive, put it on a bookshelf. Keep it for. Th- I was looking at old computer games. I have a big box computer games. I'm like, nah. I remember that game didn't work. It was pretty shitty. And I looked at. I just looked it up, and it's like, oh yeah, they're selling for eighty six bucks. <laughs> big box oh, computer damn. games, right? Um, anything that you, it, it has a like a an arc of nostalgia that comes back, and people want. Uh, one of the ones that was really interesting is you remember all you, my first computer that I owned that was mine that I bought with my money was a 286SX, which is a really shitty processor. They had, DX existed at that time. 386s were just coming in. I couldn't afford uh, the DX. Um, when I got, I went to the store, Future Shop, to buy my modem, uh, I couldn't afford a 288. They, they had 288s. I couldn't afford it. I, I bought the 14.4, half the speed, right? Now yeah. those things, no, that hardware... Right, it it used to be like you could buy them for ninety nine cents, like, and and then people like got nostalgic for their youth and said, "I want to play those mm. old games." And the prices went like three hundred dollars for like a for like a old broken non functioning two eighty six, like a, not like a special you know PC Junior with special edition limited any not no just a junky old. Regular thing that somebody could run their old hardware. It feel the floppy going in, and like that is weird, man. Right, the fact that these things go out of fashion, become valueless, and then come back. Um, uh, any of you? I know early on when we were planning this show, any of you listen to the Harlan Ellison version? Because uh, it's no, I not, found it, but I didn't listen to it. It's good, but the problem is, it's got a, it's got a music throughout. Like he's got, and it's not totally inappropriate music, but he recorded that for like a Los Angeles based uh, radio show that he hosted um, over a few weeks. Yeah, that's the one. And um, the problem with it is, is the music underneath, I think is just, you know, makes it not for the ages, even though it's, it's, I would say fairly appropriate most of the time when people choose music. Yeah, I should say, I didn't listen to the whole thing. I listened to about a, a minute of it. Yeah. I didn't have a problem with the music. And, no, no, it's, uh, it's fairly Harlan good. Ellison certainly gives a very enthusiastic and emotive in the documentary. <laughs> story. In the documentary where he is very, very elderly. Um, you know, it's probably a year before he died they recorded it. Um, he's looking weak. He, ta- he talks a lot about the book and uh, uh, <laughs> at one point the narrator of the film um, he says, Harlan Ellison claimed to have read it 200 times. <laughs> like mm. a city of singing flame. Like, they don't believe him. I believe him uh, because <laughs> he, he he's angry. I could about. certainly, yeah, I could believe that. And it's short, it's short, it's short right? Um, yeah. But he I, also talks about yeah. how he would read, that's how he learned to read aloud. Um, and he he was a very excellent audiobook narrator he like narrated some ben bova books that are pretty mediocre but he's just a great narrator so you kind of like it and when if you find like some of his uh he's got a short story or novelette or something called run for the stars 
man, like he, he he's another he's actually a lot like Clark Ashton Smith in output, like not a lot of novels, right? Almost all short stories. His reputation mm-hmm. comes from that and from TV, but uh, passionate about uh, Clark Ashton Smith and passionate about the construction of words and uh, but he also wanted to make money. Whereas I think, uh, you know, that, and that's going to Hollywood and getting cynical. Whereas I don't think, uh, we find a lot of cynicism here in Mr. Clark Ashton Smith. He's, uh, no, actually he's born, he's born into sort of like a, a world weary wisdom about reality, but not, and he, not any kind of cynicism. He, he also went his own way, right? Oh like, yeah. I don't think he felt like he, yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe he did feel like he was being pushed into a certain kind of life, but um, it doesn't seem like he was. Like he just decided this is what he's going to do, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. I, I watched and that documentary been, twice. It's very good. You, you all should yeah, check it it's out. It's a it's a good doc. I'm glad they made it. It was definitely seems like it was a passion project. Oh yeah. yeah if you, it's a hippocampus it's like, press DVD, probably Blu-ray as well. Um, mm. And uh, it was, uh, I bought it with like a whole bunch of other, including that uh, Clark Ashton Smith novel, The the Black uh, Diamonds. And uh, mm-hmm. everything I've got from them has been very excellent. I don't, you know, usually shill for publishers, but I do like them. Subterranean's good too, but I like Hippocampus. Hippo- Hippocampus Press is, is awesome. I've bought I have a really I have good many, content. Many it's very passionate uh, people there, I think. They just like, they want to be publishing this stuff, they want to be sharing. The materials. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit pricey, but I have to say, I've never, I've never regretted buying one of them. No, books. the contents are are pretty solid, right? Oh yeah, for sure. And they put you know effort into um the covers with original artwork and mm-hmm. stuff often as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the presentation in general, like it's really uh, the, complete, the stuff I bought. I like books. Uh, I, I like to own. Yeah, the complete poems they, they I got nice. of Lovecraft. Uh, I use that like three times a month. Oh yeah. And cool. I've read it many times because I'm looking for for a specific poem, but just a really handy reference. And you know, it's been updated every every once in a while. St. Joshi finds some some scrap of poem somewhere. <laughs> well worth uh, checking out that their mm. website when it, when they have new content. I'm like down for it. Mm. Uh, they they actually have there is a, a, a another thing I got from them is the Clark Ashton Smith, not Emperor of Dreams, but the uh, Hashish Eater poem, I think, on CD. I haven't actually mm-hmm. listened to it, but I, I got that with uh, another Clark Ashton Smith book. and Very, very delectable. Mm. He's, um, he makes reading delicious, right? Very rich. And, that, uh, yes. and what's so funny is this book, this particular one, is like the lightest and most accessible I've ever read by him. Nothing is, yeah, is anything this, as this close is to this. This is one Clark Ashton. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Uh, this is like, not Tathik. Yeah, no. He, like I, I even tried his to poems. Read when I was young and yeah, no, they're get. they're. Uh, yeah. uh, it, it's high level. He's operating. Yeah, you made that point that 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 he's this is his most popular one, and probably because it's so accessible. And I think that's probably true because yeah. Like for somebody for bibliophiles like our, I believe ourselves, like you like you say that that's so accurate. It's absolutely delicious. It's like you just mm. you're like oh this prose like it, it make like his prose is so rich that it makes you feel like you're eating like 
I don't know, like a really well-made. Yeah, a lot of lot of sugar, but it ain't cheap. It's not corn syrup. Yeah, if this is the stuff that you pay like fifteen dollars for in a restaurant or whatever for <laughs> yeah. you know, a slice of cake, and they're sh- they're small they're small desserts, but you man, that was delicious. But like you have to be like you have to like, you have to like that sort of you know it's like it's somehow niche you know I don't mm-hmm. I don't want to overdo the metaphor you know what I mean but it's somehow like you know it's got a lot of if you don't like honey and you're not gonna like it or whatever it is yeah you have to and honey's one of the things it. he would put in. Absolutely. It only appeals to certain tastes, but it is like, like he literally, his prose is some of the richest I've ever read. And he, and he, he, you know, Ambrose, Ambrose Bierce is even harder to get into, not because of the vocabulary, but because of his challenging the reader to even understand what's going on. Like he doesn't want you to know what's going on. That's like, why would you do that? (laughs) Why are you trying to make your prose (laughs) hard to, uh, like the sentences make sense, but you don't know where you are, or what's happening. He's just making jokes. He's enjoying himself, and uh, that's not Clark Ashton Smith. He's 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 making beauty. He's he's carving uh, magnificent uh, sculptures out of mountainsides, and they're very intricate, and it, they're hard to appreciate unless you look at them the right way. But man. He really does this. He really does have something. And it's, it's, you know, it's related to what Lovecraft does. And you can see why Lovecraft was his biggest fan, right? Robert E. Howard is a great poet. Lovecraft is a great poet. Somebody was saying, uh, in the documentary, um, that Lovecraft wasn't a great poet. No, he is a great poet. Um, but not, not doing these kinds of things that Smith does. Lovecrafts are way more accessible. Some of them are a little bit hard, but they're like way more accessible. Uh, when when uh, Clark Ashton Smith does translations of Baudelaire, um, you can't tell where they one ends and the other begins because the translations are themselves incredibly intricate sculptures of the sculpture that's being translated. Because he doesn't just pick this most basic word, you know. He, he, and he wants to, he wants to rhyme it and sound it in his own way. And he, you know, he's the guy, you know, if, if, uh, Lovecraft's founder was Poe and, um, and Dunsany, Clark Ashton Smith's founder, uh, is Baudelaire and uh, Poe. Yeah. Oh, Poe being the taproot again. Yeah. He's, He's undeniable. He's undeniable. You know, I I, I did a comparison of, uh, was it last week or I think it was this week. Did a comparison of the first Sherlock Holmes short story, not the novel, which nobody reads, the Scarlet, uh, Study in Scarlet, but the first short story that got everybody excited, uh, Scandal of Bohemia, to uh, Poe's The Purloined Letter. It's a rip. It's like a ripoff of the plot, and once you start comparing it, you see like, oh, Conan Doyle's like the very accessible and sort of dumb <laughs> version of Poe because Poe's like he's he's showing off, he's doing all sorts of things, and it's the same story. Like there's a, a hidden object in a house, right? What is what does uh, Dupin do? He goes into the house and he says it's going to be here. 
<laughs> and he looks at the the light source where the letter is hidden. Um, what does uh, Conan Doyle do? He has um, an elaborate scheme to have Sherlock Holmes get a bunch of uh, homeless people get outside the building. Uh, Watson's going to throw a firecracker into the room of the house. Then the ladies uh, and Sherlock, we get the great line from that, the story. Um, Watson says, how are you going to get her to, uh, how are you going to find out where this hidden letter is or this hidden photograph is? And uh, he says, I will have her show me. <laughs> and literally that's what he does. He, he throws a, a, fi- a fire, firecracker into the house or some burning thing. And she runs to where she's hidden the photograph. And so he's just watching her while she runs there. Whereas Poe does it all through like a ratiocination, the thing that supposedly uh, Sherlock Holmes is done for, you know, and they're, they're about the same length, but we love Sherlock Holmes. We love Dr. Watson. We love Wa- uh, London. We love the relationship he has with uh, that woman, Irene Adler, who's also got another name because she's married, Irene Norman. Right? We love all that stuff. But if you look at the original Poe, we don't love Dupin at all. <laughs> mm. um, do you know the the contents of the letter are like um, sick, evil, and twisted, which is never mentioned in the story. You have to like know something that Poe knew that, and like it's really hard to know. Whereas the photograph is uh, is of the uh, of the King of Bohemia, right, uh, with the uh, the woman and her kissing or something, like. It's not like he's just like he he's saying I'm doing a tribute to Poe and nobody knows. Mm. It's incredible. Mm. He he read yeah. he read those Dupin stories and saying, you know, <laughs> he can't stop. Yeah. Right. I mean, to do, yeah. I think to a little extent that sort of makes me think of like like Harry Potter versus, versus Tolkien or like. Dumbledore oh, yeah. Gandalf, oh, yeah. Right? Like, oh, yeah. I mean. There's clear, I mean, there's clear inspiration there that Rowling takes, but I think also just like that's like I can read a Harry Potter novel, you know, and it's so accessible, but, so easy, but yeah. like it's so I mean, and no it, doubt and it's really it's really entertaining. It's super entertaining, but yeah. like yeah, like but Tolkien, like I love him. I don't have any Harry Potter tattoos. Uh, <laughs> any. Tolkien, like he his is so rich, but you gotta you gotta take the time, and you may not. And it's not as fun and light. I mean, there's humor in there, but it's not like I mean, like Harry Potter. Like, oh, it's it, Harry Potter's breezy, right? It's easy breezy. Yeah. And, and, Tolkien and, is not yeah, breezy. And, He's fun, and, but not and, breezy. And uh, yeah, Conan Doyle with Sherlock Holmes is the same thing. Where it, you, it's just it's a more compelling read. It's, it's, it's an afternoon's entertainment, right? guaranteed in enjoyment, right? Oh. Which yeah. you know, you, you, when you're reading this, you don't say guaranteed enjoyment is the first thing that pops into your head. <laughs> Clark Ashton Smith, guaranteed enjoyment. He's not. He's not uh, whoever produces those uh, very good Marvel movies, as opposed to the mediocre ones. It's intellectually interesting, but uh, it's not exactly uh, entertaining. No, no. It, it, I mean, <clears throat> I, I found myself uh, attentive, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's not. It's, it's, it's not a good perfect. story, but it, it's a different. It hits a different. I feel like it just tickles a different part of the brain. Absolutely. And it does. Like it's this, I would call Clark Ashton Smith high art. I would call, you know, Conan Doyle and, and rolling, you know, I would call them like good art, you know? Um, and you know, like, look, most art is good and being better than average is is definitely, definitely, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But like, you know, this stuff, 
you know, I think, I mean, I think Smith is, is in the top 5% at least. And it's not because of his plots. I swear to God, it's not because of his plots because they're, they're kind of clunky. This one's pretty good. This is like one of his best plots. Uh, but most of those Poseidonist stories are like, well, that happened. (laughs) It's like, why is that happening? Well, you know, he likes this and he likes that, but, uh, Lovecraft's plots are much better, like as a pl- uh, as plots. But you love Clark Ashton Smith, despite the plots not being that great, because he's not much of a plotter. Somebody mentioned Kim Stanley Robinson earlier, and I, I think I feel the same way about about him. Like I don't, I think his ideas are incredible. I think his writing is really good. Um, I but I feel like I'm trying to remember. We read a couple in the book that I have with Eric, who's on just this other podcast, and um, like. Every time I was like, wow, like 700 pages to explore this concept is yep. cool, but like nothing happened. Like yep. literally nothing happened. Um, and you know, whatever. Like I think one of them was like 22, 23 or something like that. And I remember like mm. it was so cool the way they got about space, the different stuff that was going on. But I couldn't, I remember the, the main character, but I couldn't tell you at all what, mm-hmm. what, what the, the quote unquote plot was. Yeah. Pacific was- Edge is the one I've read by him that uh, stands out the most. And that one is, is like a guy tries to get girlfriend at baseball game. <laughs> um, but they live in post-scarcity society like with utopian, uh, you know, no highways and occasional sail sh- sailboats show up. Like it, it, the plot is, is not, uh, you know, it's cool. Absolutely. I really like Kim Stanley Robinson, but yeah, no, he's not playing the same g- game as, uh, Clark Ashton Smith. He's just a weird guy. Clark Ashton Smith. He does not, which is surprising how, you know, popular he was. Um, but yeah, I think we talked this one to death. We're good. <laughs> Thank you guys. Uh, oh, I, 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 cool. I wanted Thanks, to. Yeah. Want to put in? Oh, thank you for recording. Uh, Pirates of Venus also on the list. Meeting with Medusa. I don't think I've read this. I thought I had, or if I have, I haven't read in a long time. Like Clark, um, sailing to Byzantium. That's uh, I guess a follow up to our last downward to the earth, and then Farnham's Freehold. So oh, I'm not going to be available for Pirates of Venus. Oh, uh, Oops. where are you going to be? Um, up in Grand Marais. I don't know what that is. That's uh, northern Minnesota. Ah, uh, okay. Um, so I wanted to uh, That's mention Canada. Um, I I will be about forty five minutes away from the Canadian border. Connor, you as, as recorded some stuff, and wow. I know we were planning on doing something in May, and we're just about out of May. Uh, when you came back from your European. Oh, I- Vacation. It might have been No Man's Land. Yeah, that one I think has been uh, delayed and delayed. We missed a show or something. But I also see the thing on the roof uh, by Howard. Oh, yeah. And it says you recorded sure. that. But I think there's another yep. one that said May somewhere. No, no Man's Land is there, yeah. It could um, have been any number of things. So um, why don't you pick a date uh, that's um, uh, after... Whatever. What date is this? Oh, uh, oh, and I might not August. be available the twenty third either. Oh crap! Hold on. Is it? You want me to pick a date now, Jesse? Yeah. yeah. Can you pick in August? Is that too far ahead? Oh, Do you know what's going on? Uh, sh- no, no, it shouldn't be. Okay, let me just look at. 
Because I, I don't, I, I don't want to delay things five years. Two years is fine, but five years is too long. What about... Oh, wow. Okay. So where are we now? Okay. So we could do anything like... Fifth or sixth of August, twelfth or thirteenth. Twelfth. Uh, let's 19th. do the let's do the second week of August because uh, I already yeah. have Farnham's freehold in the first. Twelfth, perfect. Wait, I can do that. I don't think that's the right date. Hold on. Uh, well, it, it'll be sorry, it'll be different for you. Yeah, Maybe yeah. The, it'll August thirteenth. Uh, yes, o- August the thirteenth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then right. you want to do No Man's Land. Yeah, that sounds good. All right, Thank now you. that's the f- one with the things to say about it. Monkeys? No, not monkeys. The mm-hmm. um, nope. It's a no. lost the lost uh, yeah. tribe of cave yeah. people yeah. in Scotland. Troglodytes. That's the vocab word I was going for. For sure. Troglodytes. Are they chuddies? Yeah, is my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll find out. We've done chuds, so we'll yeah. see how chuddy chuddy they are. I just read I read something recently that uh, had surprised, or maybe it was a movie that had surprised chuds in it. I was like, "Awesome! I love." Oh, me what some is that chuds. again? Cannibalistic Cannibal- humanoid underground dwellers. Oh, okay, great. This they are almost chuds. Oh, good, good. They <laughs> they li- lick and like nip, nip but no. <laughs> yeah, but but not not they don't quite jump in to the full on cannibalism. <laughs> All um, right, so I'm gonna put that on. There, right cool. there. No Man's Land. And then it looks like Evan signed up for that years ago. So we'll pop him in mm-hmm. there and ask him if he's going to fit. So much better than it is today. Paul has to do his next podcast, which is called Paul Sings the Classics. Paul, Paul, <laughs> Paul, 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 Paul not only has a voice for silent movies, Paul has a voice for musicals. A singing voice for musicals? A vo- musicals? voice for silent musicals. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I don't know. That wasn't bad. Let's um, let's I consult. A fair, a fair singer. If there's ever a story that's got songs in it, do you want some? <laughs> let me know. Just uh, you know, I, I think I did. I send you. I, I I'm gonna have to get going, Jesse. Because no worries. I have, yeah, I, I, I know I, you have gaming as usual. No, I don't have gaming. This oh, week, but I'm actually I'm I'm actually meeting two people from. Nerds of a Feather, one of whom's in town, one of whom lives here. Nerds of a Feather get together is what I'm hearing. Right. Nerds <laughs> of a Feather get together, so I've got to get together. So I've got right. to gather, gather yourselves together. We are, we are I'm, a, that at I'm pretty years, sure that's so. a book, isn't it? Gather yourselves together? Maybe. Anyway, it's it a pleasure to podcast with uh, the four of you and uh, all yeah, you take It's a Philip K. Dick novel. Gather yourselves together. Oh, sure, yeah. Jess. Sure. Okay. What do you Thanks. mean, sure? Thanks. It's a Philip K. Dick novel from 1994. <laughs> that guy has so many novels. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a. Um, it's one of those uh, ones he couldn't sell because it was uh, mainstream. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Okay. I might have to head off to bed as well because it's about. It's quarter past three here, and I'm. Oh man! Wow. For well, I'm I'll allow it. I'll allow it, but I, I want you. I want you to be more active on Twitter so I can uh, make some oh. jokes. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, be. you've no. been there, but you've been you've been off the wrong continent. I've, I've been posting photos rather than doing other discussion or anything else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I miss you I'll, on uh, Twitter. I'll jump on Twitter and and tweeting. Start tweeting. Yeah. <laughs> or at okay. least DMing. At least. Okay, that also I can do. Yeah, that sounds good. Nice. 
Okay, sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thank you I'll so much. See, see you later. Have a good uh, day, probably, for you guys, I think. Yeah. 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 Uh, yep. Still morning here. Yep. <laughs> Talk to you later. I'm, I'm into the afternoon. Yeah, oh, take yeah, care. Nice uh-huh. Yeah, you're, I think. You. Well, Thank you. At least. You as well. You're at uh, the same time zone, right? Uh, uh, Tommy I'm, and. I'm Eastern. Yeah. I'm Eastern, yeah. Yep. So, so usually right. I'm Eastern when I'm home. So what went take wrong, care. Trish? Okay, see you guys later. Bye, oh, Connor. What went wrong? Yes. Yeah. I had an awful, awful dream this morning. Oh. Um, Did you and, write it down? Uh, it kind of discombobulated me for. But yeah, I'm I'm fine now. Did it you write just, it write down your nightmare? No, I I uh, told told my sister about it, and okay. so it was uh, uh, just not fun. But anyway, I'm fine now, Good. and uh, uh, thanks for the podcast, and You're I'll talk welcome. to you later. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, all right, bye. Thank you, bye, Jesse. Do you have two? Bye, Jesse. Do you have two minutes? Yeah, uh, real I, quick. I got two hours for you. I, Oh yeah, no, that's fine. I'm I'm well, I'm at my sister's place. And I want to get back to them, but I did want to just like check in. Uh, you know, first of all, thanks. That was yep. fun. Yeah, very fun. Um, you know, feel feel free to reflect, or even now, if you have any like feedback about like I, I I'm not sure about the flow and stuff like that. So hopefully, you know, if there's anything that it's like to you mean on the recording for today. Uh, today's yeah. story. Honestly, yeah, I gave yeah. you I gave you most of my feedback in the show. Um, there are like a couple spots where I like, oh, that sent that sentence sounds like he's put a space in it, and it's right near the beginning. There's one, uh, I think, the first semicolon, and it sounds like uh, that it, they sound disjointed when you you said it, and I'm not sure why. But uh, yeah, like I could I could fix that with like a little just a snip in the file, but um, it's not. Uh, there's nothing like. There's no other major issues. There's like a couple of. Uh, uh, here and there, yeah. but nothing, Early, nothing especially. horrible. Yeah, and I could yeah. again no, no, fix most true. of that. And, I, and for as far as uh, I, I mean, I actually was no more referring to, to like today's today's podcast. Oh, just, uh, uh, get close to your mic, one. get a better mic. <laughs> yeah, you're not yeah, I, I you're think, you're not terrible, but um, you know, if we can get you yeah. nice I'm and warm next phone. to the I'll microphone, to yeah, but also get closer to your phone, right? Oh well, I'm, yeah, they're in my ears. They're earphones, right? So oh, it's your shit. You're off. using the shitty microphone, is what? Uh, the, well, the, I'm no, using the the, head, the the hands-free headphones. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'll but the microphone in the actual phone is much better than the microphone in the in the in the earbuds. Well, or being a being a more quiet place. I know in like two. It's not horrible. Four weeks. The one like so. In four in in two weeks, I'll. Probably be on. I'll probably be in almost the same place, or maybe on my way back. Mm-hmm. Um, in two weeks after that, I should, if my flights go the way they're supposed to, I should be free from, um, like pretty much for you know two to three hours worth of podcasts for that one. Um, so no, well, I, let, I yeah, I wanted sure to see. Okay that, like, let me just content. I guess is more what I'm. Looking so for. the next one you're uh, that I'm seeing you're scheduled for is uh, Charwoman Shadow, right? Yeah, June fourth. Uh, anything else? Do you, do you, are you on the list? I don't, I see one person up there. I'll send it oh, in the chat. I, I'll, I'll have to look and get back to you. Like I'm doing a, I'm, there yeah, I'm doing so much, um, traveling right now. Yeah. It's tough, just tough to know when I'm available. Like, I mean, I'll do them. I mean, that's part of what I'm asking for when I say what, if you have any feedback is like, 
did, was I adding to the, to the conversation? Absolutely. Way, you know, just being the new guy. Yeah. And, sure and I'm it's not, not it's uh, not all for the audience. Much, it's also for the little. No, you're, you did fine. I, I, all right. My major feedback is I get the better mic. We'll edit stuff. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, in the future, especially if I know that I'm doing this, I will try to have a better setup. Yeah. Um, but it's now. not ruinous. What, what you've got is better than what we had with s- s- several. So. Um, and the yeah, audio, sure. the Wi-Fi um, didn't cut out, so. Yeah, no, it did at one point before. I wasn't oh, okay, good. Um, so I, I did miss a couple minutes, or like about a minute when you guys said Oh, wow. But, um, and then as far as just like, like going forward with like me, you know, because I want to continue to record for you, or yep. for, you know, especially like the ones that are, I mean, other than just like authors that I like, uh-huh. know, which is exciting, um, you know, I just... Like ones that you're going to do a podcast on. I mean, that would both allow me to be a, a be participant to be a and uh, a, yeah, because you get to listen to it while you're reading it, and then you get to know it really well. Absolutely. Um. So, yeah. um, uh, there was another thing I want to mention to you. There's a guy um who he doesn't want to pull the trigger. He keeps saying, uh, "I'm thinking about it." Um. Uh, there's a guy called uh, well, he was just on the podcast recently. Uh, I mentioned his thing, Jonathan Manfred Weichel. Um, I really, uh, one of the, one of the reasons I know who he is is because the cover art he chooses for his, his books is excellent, right? Like I care a lot about art, right? And most sure. people yeah. who are publishing, um, books today care nothing about art and, uh, will accept any old shit. He's the opposite. He says, I want my book to give off a certain vibe. And I'm like, uh, yeah, but there's no audiobook. <laughs> so I've been harassing him to, uh, get into audiobooks. Um, uh, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna send him, uh, your thing from t- uh, today or whatever file I have and, uh, tell him that I told you that, uh, I think you guys should get together. Um, uh, because I don't know how, I don't know how his books are. I haven't read them, but the descriptions mm-hmm. of them make me want to read them. And the fact that yeah. he's got amazing art. The, uh, he picks like really obscure, like horrific stuff. Um, I didn't send you this, um, this, uh, new Westlake story I got. S- somebody, um, I don't think I sent it to you. Um, it's only 14 minutes and we're going to have Eric read it on the podcast. So we don't, we don't, sure. uh, you know, I don't need, but this is like a, a story by Westlake I'd never read before. Uh, because nobody's ever read it since it came out in 1960. So I got, I, I asked, when I found out about it, I asked, uh, somebody, uh, the people in the pulp group that I'm in, does anybody have a copy of this? This, there's a Westlake in here, this public domain, and a guy in California mailed it to me, and I scanned the whole issue, and there's a whole lot of good stuff, including some Ambrose Pierce, uh, a lot of reprints, and this Westlake story. And, uh, the story's called Cat Killers. It's kind of like Cats of Ulthar. Except, uh, with a juvenile delinquent and, uh, it's horrific. Like, seeing him torture cats and then what happens to him at the end is like, ooh, hey, yeah. So I, I, when I tweeted about this, he says, uh, yeah, it's kind of like my, uh, my story. It sounds like my story. Kitty cat massacre. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> so his stuff is brutal. Um, and really interesting sounding. He's not a, uh, so, you know, it's the kind of thing where if, if you read Clyde Barker, you think, oh my God, I can never meet that guy. He'll murder me, right? He, Jonathan is not a murderer as far as I know, 
but um his, his he's got like um weird idea to write about so he's got one that's uh uh marines in uh south pacific during world war ii collecting human heads of japanese soldiers Ooh, right like it's designed i mean he's got a the way he's got a one series he's got uh they're and they're pretty short i think they're all novelette length or shorter um is uh uh tales to make you vomit right <laughs> like it, it is not stuff that is going to be mainstream uh popular but it's a a niche that he's carving out as a as an author that nobody it, it, he's just carving himself out as an author um by just writing about things that he he finds horrific and interesting to write about and they're not all horrific but they're all like that weird you know um so i wanted to say uh, you guys should probably start emailing each other dming each other because i want to hear his audiobooks um and i know a narrator <laughs> you see what i mean Fair. yeah i mean do you know is he looking for is that something he's looking for is, he, is this something that would um because you know like uh, there is a part of me that is still struggling with the amount of time i put in when it's just a short story, like, and it's by these like great authors that that yeah. I would want to read anyway. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's little... uh, absolutely. So this would be some sort of money arrangement, not not a right. uh, okay. Um, cool. No, I mean, in that and in that case, like, I, that would be very exciting. Yeah, like, and I, I like, I'd like to. Yeah, like, I, I don't. He he's he's throwing around numbers. I'm like, that seems expensive to me, um, because like. Look, I, I think everybody should make a living uh, so, because they have to. Um, but the numbers he was throwing out seemed like a lot. And I don't think it takes a, as much time as some people claim. Uh, I mean, I how, mean, how many hours did so, you put into this, right? I, I, I would say about four. Probably not even four. Uh, right. Uh, so I, you're I, pretty good I at know. it naturally. Right. And, yeah, and maybe yeah. the research, maybe the re- reading it the first time that counts as, uh, right. to bring, yeah, bring yeah. the number up. For, like, right. Like it's about, it's about an hour and a half recording. Right. I, I, again, I was pretty sure once I got started reading it, I was like, oh, I think I know this story. So I like actually was like, I'm going to, this one was actually an experiment where I was like, I'm going to do it not cold because I know what's going on, but I'm going to do it relatively cold first through it. So I'd say this one took me about two and a half with it for an hour and a half recording because it stops and pauses and then like mixing maybe three. I don't know. Yeah. It wasn't like, it, it, it was wasn't, like it wasn't 10 times. Time. Right. Right. Like, um, I know. So normally, and the longer it like, gets, the maybe so the more I've complex thing, it gets. I get, I get I, it. Doing, yeah. I, I've been on this thing called ACX. Yeah, I know. And they, they, they pay per finished hour. Right. Yeah. Like that's like, that's like Amazon's whatever. So the, like what I understand to be like the, the going rate, if you're like a, you know, if you're like a union actor or whatever is, is, is two or 300, but they'll have anywhere from a hundred to 200, 200 to 400 or some go all the way up to a thousand, you know, for the, like the high, the highest end, I guess, maybe, um, per finished hour. So it depends on the length of the book, but like, you know, you know, you can normally, I, it seems like people know how long a book should take to read. Yeah. By looking at something. Yeah, word count. Sure there's a yeah, there's a oh. website, word, wordcounter.net. I use it so, all the time. Like, 
you know, uh, if, so I don't know what kind of numbers he gave, but I would do, like, if I were getting like 200 per finished hour, for example, like that would be fine. And I probably, yeah, I, 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 I have no idea even how long his stuff is yeah, other than it sounds I, short, that, but the one, I, one of the ones that I'm really interested negotiable. Yeah. But also like, I'm thinking, why does he have to do it per finished hour if he's if he's gonna especially if he's gonna sell them not on Audible? If he's gonna sell them from his own website. He's gonna sell them from here. Um, you can do revenue sharing, even if it's you know not eighty uh, yeah. percent for you and whatever. I don't know, but what I do know is yeah, if he's yeah, I can talk to him about it. Have a look. Yeah, we'll see if there's an arrangement we can both come to. Yeah, like and certainly if I get a sample of his writing and yeah. I'm like, oh, this and he will uh, he will send you a sample, I'm sure. But um, but, but in general, yeah, sure. Like, he's got one called Planet of the Waves Wage Slaves. I want to read that. He's got uh, another one called the Cyclodian Cyclodian. I don't know, uh, Caldonian Boar Hunt. That's like a retelling of Hercules or something. He's got like oh, okay. um he's got like diverse ideas and um oh. and lots of nudity so put, put and yeah okay. I, I I'm gonna put uh, I I I I will uh, but I put it in the chat okay. um I'll link to his uh Amazon to, so you can see those amazing covers he mostly has um and he was just complaining recently about the art uh, not art the the guy who was doing the covers he's kind of in a beef with because um, he kept saying, I want, I want the, uh, uh, I want the text that you've been putting on there. I want to be able to do that myself because I want to do it myself. And the guy was like, no, I, I don't want somebody else ruining my art by putting their text over my art. And like, wow. Okay. Well, um, but like when you see the comparisons, like, the ra- latest one he's got is called Warrior Soul. That looks great. And there's a, like a color change for the background to make it something that was yellow red. And then the, you know, like it just looked way better. If you crop it the right way, you put the hair of the lady behind, uh, in front of the, uh, the title of the book, you know, it gives it that pulp feel and it makes it look way better. Art direction is not the same as being an artist, right? And the guy who was doing the art is really good, but he's not great at placing text on a on on art. It's a different skill, you know. And I'm I'm like, oh, that's a shame. But there's lots of great artists out there. But his value to me as an as a writer is coming up with really interesting stuff to write about. Right? Yeah, Savage Hedge Headhunters. Right, that's a good title. Five Maidens on a Pentagram. That story, when he described that story to me, I was like, that sounds really good. Um, uh, listen to this description of Five Maidens on a Pentagram. Step into the twisted world of Five Maidens and Pentagram, a gothic horror sex farce that will leave you laughing, gasping, and begging for more. Meet Jonah, a completely sane mental patient with split personalities. Ordinarily, Jonah is entirely normal, but whenever he's frightened, he turns into his evil ego... Maldius. Nobody believes John, uh, Jonah when he discovers that his doctor is actually an evil wizard named Has, Hasatan. <laughs> Has Satan. Um, 
who has built a massive pentagram in the hospital's basement and is using it to carry out twisted and perverse rite called the Five Maidens on the Pentagram, a diabolical ritual that involves sacrificing women to a sex-crazed demon. But Joan is determined to stop him, even if it means embracing his own dark side and going undercover as his own, as his alter ego in order to uncover the doctor's evil plan. Like, just sounds fun and pulpy, right? Mm-hmm. And then he's got a book called Planet of the Waves, Wage Slaves, which is like our reality, right? I'm like, wow, that sounds really good. And he's done it like uh, he he did the cover text like Planet of the Apes. I was like, oh, yeah, that's clever. So this is a guy who I want to read, but I don't read paper or e-text uh, if I can possibly help it. And, uh, you guys listen. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm mostly the same way. Like, I listen to a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of audiobooks. But, hey, I want to get back. I want to get to just spending some time with my, my sister here because yeah. I – you know, basically, I just got here last night, and it's kind of. A, I told him I had this, but you know, I've kind of ignored him for the last yeah, you know, no three and a half hours. But um, cool. I mean, that sounds interesting. That sounds good. If there's stuff that's coming up in the podcast that you're like thinking that you know there's not a recording for, and you be interested in me doing it, you know, like I said, that would be. A I great, will drop it. I will drop that it. That would to be you, a sir. great way to. That would that would give me some direction as far as pick. Otherwise, I'll probably just keep being, you know, cycling through Smith. Howard, yeah, okay, Dick. You know, I mean, which is great too. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So no, no worries. And I, yeah, don't I, do three dicks I, back to back. You do cycle through. You get yeah. much. <laughs> and there's other <laughs> stuff too. We got we got lots of Clark, uh, uh, Arthur C. Clark, and there's uh, yeah. millions I mean, I've of got great like things. Twenty different stories that you sent me that yeah. are saved in a folder. On my, you know, so I, there's no. I'm not hurting for it. I'm going to be at this convention this week. And, you know, but I, so I don't know what my time. Is going to be obviously when I like when I'm in Costa Rica for over a week, there was it wasn't happening, yeah. Um, so and I'm not home as much going forward, but I'll try, I still try to get you a couple. And again, if there's something that's like coming up and it's like, oh, you know, the, something delicious like this was, mm. like that i that's to me, that's really exciting to both get to do the thing, absolutely, and know that because it'll have a podcast associated with it, it'll probably have more people that'll pick it up and listen to it. I don't know, yep, if you have any of those like dia, dia, whatever the. You know the numbers are. No, I don't get stuff. numbers for the non for the non podcast posts, but I will get numbers for the podcasts. Yeah, so that I mean, and that's just one of those things where I, I'm trying to think about, and maybe I'll, I'll message you later on on Twitter about like, trying to figure out like how to get this stuff out there or where where other places I should be sending it because yeah. I do like this. Yeah, know, like instead of having the. Well, unique recording of if we get if whatever. we get enough bundled together, you can you can sell them right. You can sell them as a package. You can sell them as a collection. And I, I, when you have more time, uh, ask me about uh, my folder on my desktop of uh, anthologies based on themes. Like I got lots of those. All right, like uh, uh, moon yeah, moon stories. Sure. That would be. I got would be tons of those that would and good needed. titles. And I don't necessarily want to. You know, I mean, I, I want to make my only focus and like try to monetize this. No, stuff, no, but no. I'm also like, I get. I'm it. also like not currently working, other than teaching occasionally yoga class. So like, if there was some money in it, that would be nice because it would be, you know, um, doing something that I enjoy and, mm-hmm. and getting paid for it. Yeah. Um, but you know, whatever. I'm for now. I mean, I'm still enjoying just doing it and getting the experience and and being part of the podcast is cool too. So thanks again. And thank you. Um, look forward to talking to you in a couple weeks. Yeah. I'll see you on Twitter though. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you will. Yep. Take care, buddy. Bye. You too. Okay. Bye. This has been the SFF audio podcast. 
please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. I knew it was you. You yeah. knew it was me. You called me, so you should have known it was me. I'm calling other people, too. <laughs> uh, be right back. It's, it's a couple minutes early, and I've not gotten my drink yet. Be right back. Go get your drink. Connor. <laughs> I can't hear Connor. Oh, it's still connecting. I see. Connor, Tommy. Try and find Tommy. Rish and David. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Going. Uh, are you on the side of a road? I'm not. Good. <laughs> Harder to do a show from the side of the road is my thinking. <laughs> right. Yeah, it would have been less fun, I think. Yeah. I'm at my sister's house on a lake and... Um, I'm just trying to figure out how to make it disconnect to my darn headphones. No worries. I hear Trish, maybe. Mm-hmm. Hello. Uh, hello. Yes. Sorry, I had a rotten morning, and I'm still. <laughs> well, the, well we can, we can work on making it rottener. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I might might have a David too. I see Tommy. Hello, Tommy. Oh, wait, I don't have any video on, but we're going to dump the video at some point because uh, it will um, screw up the uh, bandwidth and uh, it won't come out in the final. Uh, so will you be a bandwidth on the run? Um, see, I knew we could screw up Trisha's morning better. No, 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 I made, I made Trisha's morning better. I will shut up now. Connor's still uh, trying to plug his headphones in but he's been right side up for so long he doesn't know how to uh how to do any of get... all good oh are you okay you good yeah yeah okay yeah, yeah yeah i appreciated the pun justin <laughs> justin um, yeah that's uh paul's what what's your uh, oh, oh my god not justin why did i say prince justin, justin. sorry <laughs> his, his, some that's nom de plume. <laughs> nom de tweet <laughs> That's what I was thinking no, of. What, okay. I, I, I well, used it before sorry. Twitter. I will use it after Twitter. Right. Jesse, it's not just for Twitter. There's an after Twitter? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, nothing lasts forever, Jesse. What? Um, Even Twitter. I, I'll save it for the podcast. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get you to, t- like I said, uh, uh, Tommy, I'm going to get you to turn your video off at some point because it will just make your bandwidth harder to hear you. Okay. You're in Costa, right Costa Rica, right? No, I'm back from Costa Rica. I'm in South Carolina. Oh, okay. You're all over the place. The lake house, there's like, there's, there's Wi-Fi signal here. Okay, um, good. There's not, I mean, sort of similar to Costa Rica. I'm relying on the Wi-Fi where I am. There's just oh, not a lot of, um, of, uh, of cell signal, but I at least have that ability yeah. uh, in this country. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, I did talk to you when you were in 
some Central American country. I was. Yeah, I was in Costa. I was in Costa Rica up until Thursday, Thursday morning. Okay. It was supposed to be Wednesday, but like, like got pushed back by like twenty hours. And anyway, it's a long story that nobody cares about. Let's just say it's that. <laughs> uh, for all the people who don't know who Tommy is, he's the guy who narrated the audiobook. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm out, and I, I mean. I have plenty of feedback for myself because I ended up listening to it yesterday <laughs> to refresh my memory. We'll talk about uh, we'll talk about that in the show. Don't worry, we're we're only talking pre chat stuff here right now because okay. I want to save all the gems and insults for the uh, actual okay, recording. Cool. That's uh, good, great. I hope that yeah. I, I was hoping we could talk about how shitty my recording was. I'm gonna I'm gonna get uh, a spit for posterity. Put it through your body and then put you over a fire. Don't worry, you're gonna Sweet. you're gonna cook. <laughs> Uh, Wait, will, that, will that fire send me to like another dimension? Save it for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so I don't know if we're going to get David. Um, he's he's often hard to get, but uh, he did want to be on it. I sent it to everybody. Everybody uh, got a chance to see that documentary. I know I should have sent it earlier. I didn't think of it until I was. I did. I did. I didn't have the time because you sent this so late. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I didn't watch it either. Sad yeah, stories. I watched the first like five minutes of it, but I really just I, oh I it, it moves slow, <laughs> but that's yeah. okay. I I, I wish I, I want to watch it though. Yeah. I mean, I'm really I mean every time I pay atten- more attention to Smith, I'm more impressed by him. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, while we wait a minute, I'm gonna just uh, mention what's coming up. Logan's Run is next week. Shakespeare's Planet the week after. Invitation to the Game by Monica Hughes. Oh. Then Charwoman's Shadow. Tommy signed up for that. Uh, Scratch One, the Michael Crichton. Black House by Stephen King and Peter Straub. That's a big, chunky book. Uh, Progeny, nice short novel, uh, short story by Philip K. Dick. Pirates of Venus is now on the schedule by Edgar Rice Burroughs. That is the first, uh, Carson of Venus book, I believe. Um, so I'm excited about that. And what else? Uh, Oh, we got another um, uh, Clark, a meeting with Medusa, uh, and then Sailing to Byzantium by Silverberg. Then Paul's favorite, uh, we scheduled, so (laughs) you might not want to be there, Um, uh, Farnham's Freehold. (laughs) So um, all of that is now scheduled, and uh, you're welcome to join us, Paul, but it was the first open slot that... Uh, I thought, oh, Paul won't well, 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 well th- thanks to recent events, I am not going to Gen Con, so I will mm. no longer not be not available. If you want to join, you're no. welcome to. But I will be a Gen Con. I thought we were going to hang out. Um, <laughs> well, 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 my my tripod and then my camera broke. And so Oof. I am out several thousand dollars, oh which means God. I cannot go to New Mexico mm. and I cannot go to Gen Con. Okay. I like Gen Con so much. I'm, uh, uh, I'm actually, right now, I'm in Carolinas because I'm going to volunteering for something called True Dungeon, which I actually I learned about at Gen Con, um, and which I volunteered for at Gen Con last year. I'm volunteering for it at something called MomoCon in Atlanta this coming week. Um, you volunteer anyway, a lot, is what I'm hearing. Well, right now, that's the life I'm living. I'm doing whatever I want, and so I volunteer so that I can go stuff. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could maybe, you know, Paul, if you find a volunteer job at, at Gen Con, you can... That they'll often cover your uh, uh, your hotel, and you might have to room with people. But I, 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 well, no, it, 
Well, because I was originally going to be on the um, about the writers' symposium, and I've, since I've withdrawn from that, they've taken me out of that. So it would be more than gosh for me to show up at Gen Con at this point, even count because that would. You just wear a mustache. No one will know. You'll be fine. Where are you coming Je- from, Jesse? I'm so ugly. People can pick me out of a crowd. So oh, sweet. <laughs> okay. That's why nobody else turned their video on. Okay, that's it. I'm not pretty. I'm not pretty. Uh, I don't. I, 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 as they say, I have a face for radio and a voice for silent movies. Wow. <laughs> oh, Paul. <laughs> See, all, all we have to do to make Trisha's day better is bring Paul on, and he'll uh, he'll be shining uh, as an example of how a great morning can go. Um, Self-effacing humor is fine. Connor, you're you're back. Uh, how is uh the war torn uh continent um it's 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 all right it's not bad it's pretty good i didn't see much war but um uh but it was it was nice when i left because it was spring yeah everything was starting to get um less depressing <laughs> you were like uh in, i want to say eight months is it longer than that uh oh, ten, ten and a half. Ten and a half. Um, so almost a whole year yep yeah almost wow almost um, then, Which continent uh, are we referring to? Uh, Europe. Yeah, oh, Connor went so to I was, uh, Germany and you visited Poland too, right? Yeah, yeah. I spent some time. I was, um, I was also, uh, I was volunteering as, um, as well as a way to like travel. Um, yeah, did work away so, or something different? Ex- that's exactly what I was doing. <laughs> yeah, um, I did that I in Ecuador recently, and um, I was actually just in Poland and uh, like really? all over Europe back in uh, the autumn but uh that was more like there there were shorter shorter trips so i didn't i didn't work away there it just looked work work away up is some website i guess uh some institution is yeah it's a, it connects volunteers with people looking for somewhere and you can get a place to stay ah. some kind of uh, food um while you're traveling so you only basically have travel costs nice you it was to work it was pretty good when i was um when i was there and uh um, I sort of decided to quit the job I was doing or like resign from it. And, uh, I didn't want to spend much money and like your accommodation and food is covered and you can just, um, have the opportunity to be in that country and explore a little bit mm-hmm. and get to know the culture. It's really nice. Sounds good. Yeah. So, uh, but it's, it's uh really good to be back in Australia as well. Is that the first time you've been off the, off the island continent? Uh, no, it, it would, de- uh, not the first, but definitely the longest mm. I've been away. I was thinking, I was thinking about your, um, uh, you're a cultural stereoty- stereotype. Australians are like everywhere, right? So Tommy uh, is unusual, I think, as a guy who's everywhere. Uh, as an American, you know, if you're going overseas, it's usually because you're in the army or in the Marines or whatever. <laughs> uh, there are, uh-huh. of course, tourists, right? But going and, you know, really, uh, I mean, there, there are exceptions, of course, but Australians and New Zealanders are like stereotypically everywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. they're always, their, their whole life is a gap year is my experience. <laughs> Dutch and Belgians, Dutch, Dutch and Belgians also. I, I just can't believe how much they travel. Um, Germans mm. are right. Germans, yeah, well. but they're usually retired Germans is what I find. You know, they're mm. elderly couples hiking the mountains looking for Winnetou or whoever. 
<laughs> well, um, a lot of uh, Germans migrate migrated to or uh, migrated or wanted to. Mm-hmm. A lot of Germans in their twenties migrate to Australia if they have the opportunity right. to. Right. Um, so it's in Australia. There's quite a few Germans running around. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think Germans do like to travel. But it's uh, that's interesting that you mentioned that maybe Americans don't travel or spread out as much as other people do. I, I just think it's, there are a lot of Americans who never leave the towns they grew up in. Exactly. There are a lot of Americans who, when they travel, are the worst people ever. And well, yeah. which has caused me in my travels to be um, super embarrassed. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it is embarrassing for Americans. The state I'm, I usually respond, respond with the state that I'm from. When people ask me where I'm from, it's yeah. the United States. <laughs> yeah. People just assume that I'm like a gun-toting cowboy who's kind of like, you know, punch him in the face while drinking a bunch of beers and eating hamburgers and fries. And the only one of those things that I like is fries. <laughs> Gun-toting oh, wow. cowboy. Oh, yeah, so it's like the character from Dracula, the gunslinging cowboy. Yeah, Quincy P. Morris. Uh-huh. There you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's where I... I would, look, you guys, the fact that you've already done both Dracula and uh, the, the Lord of the Rings makes me a little bit sad because those are the things... I can I can really dive deeply into. We haven't done the Hob- we haven't done we Hobbit. haven't done the Hobbit yet. You can still oh, do the Hobbit. Oh, I mean, I'm open, <laughs> dude. I would have got I you to narrate the the Hobbit, but uh, Justin Trudeau and uh, his masters in the United States have changed the laws so that it none of the Tolkien stuff is going to be public domain. So really, yep, they did that on the oh. very last day at the very last minute of last year. Yeah, and that's they did fucking and, slimy. And guess what? The CBC no story on it for months yeah. until yeah. the day after, and they'd say, "Oh, quietly, sorry, no, we're we're sorry. Oh, somebody should have done something about this." It's like his uh, Amazon started making that series or whatever, and they realized, "Oh, we can this. We can't it, let this cash cow go." It was probably not only that, but. Absolutely, it, it is the evil forces of lock lock every shit down that they possibly yeah. can, and it's it's awful. It's 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 horrendous. It was a massive betrayal. Public domain, public domain. This this idea is really a gift. You think about how much media that would have been forgotten is continually is spread around and accessible to people. It's treasure. It's literal that. treasure that is infinitely replica, replicable. I mm. can I can send it to you. You can send it to me. We both get rich. Nobody loses yeah. out, right? It's we the get opposite. intellectually and uh, culturally rich. Absolutely. <laughs> Although may, maybe not literally. And, uh, who, ca- who cares about the literally if we got the culturally? Yeah. And, and, I mean, it is literature, so literally too. <laughs> that's, that's my opinion. Yeah. Well, you're not, uh, you're not, uh, got the whip out and getting paychecks and you actually do read. So, yeah. So sad story on that, but it doesn't mean we, uh, we can't do the show, uh, show on the Tolkien. We just can't have an audiobook in the podcast feed. There are great audiobooks out there. There's, there's good ones. To, yeah, but you can to, have fun with it. Oh, I mean, I would. I mean, I, I mean for sure. I've sometimes wondered, like, you know, okay, just because it's not public domain, could I still make a recording of it as long as I'm not? You can, you can do way. it. I you just can't share out. it. <laughs> like legally, there, are, I, I do all sorts of things that are illegal, right? I mean, it, it, you guys didn't watch the the, the documentary, but 
at one point in the video, Harlan Ellison is in it, and he's, um, uh, maybe we should just get started. <laughs> Since we're not picking up David and I'm starting to talk about the, uh, the, thing, <laughs> the subject at hand. Uh, all right. So let's uh, get Paul to do a count on everybody. I think Tommy's going last because is this I, is I this put your it first? In the chat. Oh, you did. Let me come look. Um, you see your first show, right, Tommy? You sounded a little. This is my first, yeah. Yeah, it's not yeah. super complex. I did look at your notes, but I didn't want to read them too closely because um, uh, I want you to save it for the podcast. Um, but I did look at them, yeah, and I, I think sure you should you should were, reconsult your notes. I kept them pretty general. Yeah, they're good. All right. I will. Yeah. All right. So let's see. Jesse, Paul, Trish, Connor, Tommy. <laughs> All right. Here we go.